0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher
1: Media, let's make some noise.
0: Who were the Ruttles? I don't know.
2: Uh, Is it really the
3: Rattles? It might be somebody else. We are getting wet in a shower because basically we talked it over chastity of myself. And we came to the conclusion that uh, civilization was nothing more than an effective sewage system. we all know naturally people come and people go naturally let's be natural
0: Was that the prefab four, Dirk, Nasty, Stig, and Barry, the Ruttles, the singing phenomena who made the 60s what they are today? Here it was, but indeed, there was <laughs> Do you think they'll ever get back together again? I hope not. Who are the Ruttles?
4: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Skiz Cizek.
5: Very stunned.
4: Also back in the booth is Mr. Morris Burstinsky. Did I say it right that time?
1: You did. Thank you for welcoming back to the Projection Booth, or as I say in Hamburg, vor furem, the booth of screening.
4: This week, we are discussing the 1978 made-for-TV movie The Ruttles. Also known as All You Need Is Cash, the film tells the tale of the incredible smash hit band The Ruttles and their meteoric rise to fame and incredible influence on the music business. It's the brainchild of writer-co-director star Eric Idle and actor-musician Neil Innes and plays like an absurd documentary of a band from another dimension where another group of lads took the world by storm. There's not a lot to ruin when it comes to this film, but I implore people to watch The Ruddles before listening to this discussion. It is worth your time. So Skiz, I don't know if I want to ask you first whether when you saw The Ruddles the first time or what your history is when it comes to The Beatles, because I think that kind of plays a huge part when it comes to one's interaction with this film. Now, I know that you've been a musician for a long frickin' time. It's kind of weird. Well... You've been a drummer for a long frickin' time. It's weird talking about two drummers on this episode. So I'm curious, what is, I guess I will ask, what is your history with the Beatles?
5: Growing up in the 70s, they were sort of this previous generation's band, and I only knew them as solo artists on the radio. Uh, so I wasn't really a Beatles fan. Uh, I, you know, I heard some songs on the radio. I think that the Ruttles may have been the first step in me becoming a Beatles fan, the second step, the thing that sealed it was probably in the mid-'80s realizing that a lot of my favorite songs by other bands turned out to be Beatles covers, and that made me go back and, and explore the Beatles and basically grow a huge appreciation for them.
4: You're a big co- uh, fan of that cover of Helter Skelter that Susie and the Banshees did?
5: Uh, I was thinking Dear Prudence.
4: Yeah, that one's a little bit better.
5: The Bobs had a cover of Helter Skelter that definitely caught my attention.
4: So how did you discover the Ruddles... Album or TV special, or what was your first interaction with them?
5: I want to say now I, I saw on, on uh, online somewhere that when NBC first aired it, it was up against Charlie's Angels. But for some reason, I was thinking that it came on later than that because uh my brother and father and I were watching TV, and I think my brother and I were getting ready to go to bed when a commercial came on saying, Up next. And there was this commercial for this show that we hadn't heard anything about. You know, it was a, a TV special, but it was obvious Monty Python and Saturday Night Live people were involved. And uh, I seem to remember begging my dad, can we stay up and watch this? And we had no idea what it was. And it, it was pretty obvious it was a parody of The Beatles uh, once it got started. But we were like, where did this come from? Why didn't they promote this? How did we not know this was coming on? And we thought it was the funniest thing. And, uh, and of course, it was one of those things where you go to school the next day and you're asking all your friends, did you see that thing last night? And they're all looking at you like, what are you talking about? No, Charlie's Angels was on. For years, it was just a very small group of people that you knew of that saw it, too. You know, it was almost like a, you know, a UFO sighting. Like not everybody caught it, but those who did, we were all on the same page.
4: Yeah. From what I understand, they showed it once against Charlie's Angels. And then I don't know if it was a few weeks or a few months later, they replayed it in at night. And that's probably the one that you saw.
5: And then a few months after that, I found the record in a cutout bin at a department store. Hadn't even seen a record in stores. And, you know, I'm a huge uh, record store fanatic even at that age, I guess I was about 11, that album, I'd never seen it before. And in just one day, there was a stack of them in the cutout bin, and I bought it, and it became a, a lifetime favorite. And, uh, and I just read recently that it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Comedy Album that year, which is funny, because it's not exactly a, f- a funny album. It's just a really good... It's actually my favorite Beatles album. But uh, I don't listen to it and, and laugh. I listen to it and go, yeah, I like these songs.
4: So, Morris, kind of the same question for you as far as... When did you fall in love with the Beatles versus when did you fall in love with the Ruddles?
1: I think I would have been about 10 years old, Skiz I was born actually the year that the Beatles came to Australia, which was 1964, Uh, but I missed them by about three, four months, never forgiven my parents for uh, making me late for that. Uh, But about I was about 10 years old in, so in 1970, late 1974, and there was a... Kid in my class who just came round to visit me and brought over a few records. And uh, up until ten years old, I was listening mainly to classical music. That was a big thing in my house. But you know, my sisters were into some folk music. But this kid brought round the EP of Twist and Shout, and that just changed everything for me. And he, I think he also brought round uh, an EP which had Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. And to go from That first early rock and roll record to something like that was also a really big mind spin. I couldn't fathom that this was the same band. But immediately after that, all my pocket money went to buying Beatles records. As for the Ruttles, I don't think that we had it on TV here. At least if we did, I know nothing about that. But we used to have a cinema here in a suburb called Richmond, uh, the, su- the the cinema was called Valhalla, and they were known for showing things which were you know, a little bit left of centre. They showed things that most of the mainstream cinemas wouldn't, and the art house cinemas wouldn't. And they had all you need is cash. I think sometime in the mid eighties, so that was probably the first time that I saw the film, and uh, then I probably caught up again with it on VHS shortly after that, and. I remember watching it and thinking, uh, less sort of thinking that it was hysterically funny, but I was watching it at uh, the first couple of times just saying, oh, yeah, I get that reference. Yeah, I get that reference. And it wasn't until sort of as I got older and you know watched it a few more times that I sort of thought actually some of these bits are really quite funny. But I don't think I ever sort of found it buster gut funny, but just more about, yeah, that's really, really clever.
4: Classical music was also a big thing in my house growing up, but my mom did have some older records, and I remember when those collections came out, there were a red one and a blue one, and one had the Beatles in their younger days, and one was the exact same shot, but taken a few years later where they were long-haired hippie freaks, and listening to those was pretty interesting thing, especially, like you were saying, how can the same band have made these songs. And uh, just a couple days ago, actually, I was spending the night down in in Indiana, and one of my wife's friends had a poster that said the Beatles on it and my wife's looking at this and she's like they only had 20 albums and I was like no no they didn't a lot of these down at the bottom of this poster are kind of re-releases you know older uh, the uh, number one hits those kind of things and I was really curious as far as how many albums the Beatles actually had and please correct me if I'm wrong fellas but I'm thinking like 12 official releases that's that's sound about right
1: what happened was the first Albums that were released in America didn't come out on the Capitol label. There was like some small subsidiary, I think it was called uh, – well, there were two. There was a, a label called Swan Records and another record label called VJ Records. And I'm not quite sure how the rights worked. But basically, by the time that the Revolver album was released in America, and they sort of had as well released albums on Capitol in the States, America had released about 11 albums. And the UK slash rest of the world had released seven albums. It was all the same material. Of course, it was nothing extra. But because there were albums, I think, in America uh, like called Something New, they weren't the official early Beatles albums. So when you see, like, in the Ruttles case, the parody of Meet the Ruttles… That would have meant nothing in America until like sort of they caught up with the British releases a lot later on because there was no official album called Meet the Beatles. There was Meet the Beatles, but there wasn't with the Beatles, which was the second British album. So a long answer to a short question, but I think that by the time they had dissolved from the UK, we'll count those as the official albums. There were 12 official album releases. We don't count Magical Mystery Tour because that was. I think, an EP release outside of America. Of course, so uh, the double white album, that's two albums, but we'll count that as one release, so 12 official albums plus a Magical Mystery Tour EP. You know, at the end of the day, if you were to say that
4: this band had 12 albums over a period of what maybe how, – how long were they active? Because, of course, being an American, I think of 64, but they were around before that. Like, When was their first official album out?
1: Please Please Me came out in 63 and uh, Let It Be was the last album released not the last album recorded but that came out in April 1970 but the last thing that they ever recorded was uh, the song I Me mean Mine in January of 1970 so but so technically I think about 6 to 7 years of recording activity
4: and to go from Please Please Me the song to Something like the songs that were on Let It Be or Rubber Soul. I mean, even Rubber Soul, you know, much less the White Album or Sgt. Pepper's. Just the difference between those is so remarkable. And it's just, it's amazing to me that they were able to run that gamut in such a, a small amount of time. I mean, cause like you look at those albums and you're like, who are these guys compared to these guys? You know, who are these guys with the quote unquote long hair, <laughs> you know, like versus the guys with the really long hair, with the Jesus, you know, looking hair, with the round glasses, with all of this kind of stuff. It's just amazing that they were able to do that. And so 1970, they're, they're breaking up and This comes out in 1978, and I'm very curious what it was like to have seen this in 78 versus now, if you were to watch this all of these years later, because the Beatles were such – I mean, they were such a a major impact on popular culture then, and there's such a major impact now, but I don't know if people necessarily realize it when when it comes to that. So it's got to be such a strange experience to watch this now. Now, I didn't see – The Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash, until after 1982, because I think it was Yuskis that actually corrected me, because I had said that All You Need Is Cash was a mockumentary of The Complete Beatles, the 1982 documentary, but I didn't realize that 1978 comes before 1982. I'm not really good with the math. So Because seeing The Complete Beatles, and that's the one I saw first and saw it so many times, and then you see... The Ruddles, and you're just like, this is beat for beat for beat, not realizing that the Ruddles was the one that put it out there first, even though they were kind of taking from an unreleased documentary called The Long and Winding Road. So it's just this weird cycle of seeing the mockumentary before you see the real documentary and vice versa.
5: You know, I saw the Ruddles the, the first time it aired, or, you know, in 78 when it aired. And never really got to see it again. It was just in my memory until it seemed like years later when public television would have a a, a fun drive and they would show the complete Beatles followed by all you need is cash which at that point I was like, that's the perfect way to see either of those. And, and it doesn't matter which order, as long as you're watching them both back to back, because you realize first what a great story the Beatles story is, and then you realize what a great parody the Ruddles are. I know what you mean. I, it almost seems like the Ruddles was made to parody the Complete Beatles, but I almost wonder if the filmmakers behind the Complete Beatles were using the Ruddles as a framework for how they would make the Complete Beatles.
4: Just so folks know, Morris talked about this film on uh, See Here, his podcast, where he talks about music and films, and you guys brought it up, like, this seems to be the blueprint for a lot of musical documentaries. Like, you watch... The Ruttles, and you see all those beats, and then you realize, you have to realize, or somebody like me is going to come along and and pound it into your head that this came before the typical documentary form. This came before – I mean, of course, documentaries have been made before, but this is – this exemplifies what you see in musical documentaries now. Like you see this, the, the photographs, the talking heads, the little musical breaks, all of these things, all those beats are there. So that's what makes this even more spectacular when you watch the complete Beatles and you're just like, Oh yeah, this is the way that you tell music documentaries. You see something else and you're just like, Oh yeah, this is how you tell a documentary. And then also it's, it's interesting too that Skiz, you just, finished a music documentary that took you nineteen years to do. Of course there probably wasn't an overt thing where you're just like, this is what how you have to make a music documentary, but there's even beats when it comes to that. Like, okay, we're gonna give the introduction, we're then we're gonna go into the the backstory, we're gonna give the history. And like, you know, your film Ice Picked in the Moon, where you're talking about the Reverend Fred Lane, you know, there's a very I can't say clear end to it, but there's a beginning, a middle and an end to the film, just like there's a very clear beginning, middle and end to the Ruddles and to the Beatles story.
5: You know, it's, it's funny now that you mentioned all this. I remember seeing it for the first time and feeling like it was very familiar. Like it was a parody of not just the Beatles, but also the structure of a documentary. But I was at 11, 11 years old at the time. I can't think of what documentaries I would have watched before uh, particularly music documentaries, if any. It's interesting to think, like, did this start all that? I can't imagine it did. There had to have been other music documentaries before that, that had this style that, that, that the Ruddles film was parodying, but I can't think of any examples.
1: I was trying to look into this while I was doing the research for the See Here episode. I really struggled to find anything. There was another, you know, two really big music documentaries if you want to call it that well one was um don't look back the dylan one and i guess it's black market counter film eat the document then there was also i guess you know the rolling stones cocksucker blues which never got a release and the last waltz by the band and yep yeah, sure there may be something else but those films were more about this is what's happening now rather than, here's a history. And I guess in 1976, 77, rock and roll was, I don't know, would you say it was entering middle age or something like that? No one had yet gone and done a history because rock and roll wasn't yet looking back, or maybe it was only just starting to look back on its history. There wasn't much to do a history of. There might have been other documentaries besides the ones that I've mentioned that were saying here's an account of what is happening now in this person or this band's space because rock and roll was still not the old geezer that it is now. There wasn't maybe as much thought in, in filmmakers minds to say, Hey, let's do a history of this band or of this particular movement. But as, um, our good friend Eric Peterson has been saying to me for, you know, the last few years, we're living in the golden age of the music documentary. And it seems like these GoFundMe campaigns and the like means that anyone can go do a documentary on a band that they love, an artist who hasn't had their time in the light. And I'm sure, you know, with you, Skiz, with doing the thing about the Reverend Fred Lane, That's a perfect example. You're able to bring someone who not enough people know about and you feel that people should know about to the public eye. And you go on any of the um, streaming platforms and every band, every artist who you want, there's a documentary out there about them. So it's hard to fathom that in 1977, 78, really probably Eric Idle and, Gary Weiss and Neil Innes and all these guys were creating something new.
5: I'm thinking maybe it was more a parody of news reporting. All the music documentaries that we're thinking of from before then, there was no on-screen narrator, but there was in the news and in, uh, in news shows, you know, 60 Minutes and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm thinking the Ruddles. maybe it was so familiar because it was a parody of TV documentary, not necessarily theatrical
4: yeah, I can see that, especially with Eric Idle as being our narrator and the man in the trench coat. And he very much looks like the man on the street reporter, which he literally is, and that whole thing, I mean, because that's that's a part of this documentary that can get old quickly. This whole thing that he does where it's like on this spot and then the camera is basically the camera's his adversary throughout this entire film. The way that the camera drives away from him while he's chasing after it. One of the first jokes that Idol thought up while he was doing this, or those moments where the camera will start to pan and he is following the camera, like, no, don't, you know, don't leave yet. Or where he's going through the, the water. I think that's in the second one, but yeah, those moments where he and the camera have this very adversarial relationship is something that we would kind of be familiar with when it comes to on the spot reporting. I think you're very right about that.
5: I remember thinking that those moments were so hilarious the first time I saw it. And I watch it now, I'm like, "Uh, I've seen this joke. I mean, I I don't know how I would feel if I were seeing it for the first time now, but I'm like, okay, let's get through this gag so we can get to to one of the songs.
1: Which is often the opposite way that a lot of people feel about musicals. They they think, can we get through this song so we can get back to the plot line?
4: And these moments of the Talking Head interviews and things. I mean, when I think about Monty Python and the things that they they were parroting, you know, you think about the news reports about the uh, gangs of roving grannies or the uh, keep left signs, those kind of things. And you're just like, okay, yeah, we've seen this kind of stuff on Monty Python, so they are definitely parroting something that is a known thing. And this is a parody, but to your point, because when it comes to the songs and and I know you brought up Weird Al on your episode of See Here, Morris, is that the songs in and of themselves are not inherently funny, and they aren't making strives to be funny you know there's some wordplay which is great the music is spot on but it's not like it is just taking a Beatles song and replacing the words with something you know like a virgin to like a surgeon those kind of things there's not any of that kind of stuff so the way that this parodies is more parodying the style than the Open the broad parody of stuff, and that it, it's it, to, to talk about another musical documentary, it treads that fine line between clever and stupid so well.
1: Yeah, look, I remember when I first heard the album and I saw Eric Idle on the front, and I thought, oh, okay, so this is going to be a funny album. And really, completely to your point, Skiz, I also thought, well, hang on, these songs are really funny, and I was. Desperately trying to think, oh, that, that bit in ouch where he sings, oh, it upsets the apple cart. That's supposed to be funny. Uh, no, not really. The, uh, the only moment on the album where I do find something actually genuinely funny, it seems to still be a lyric that. John Lennon would have come up with anyway, had he written that song. That was actually on the CD release, not on the record release, the song Blue Suede Schubert, where he sings, You've Got Nothing to Eins, Zwei, Drei, Fear. That I always found really clever and very funny, but it's once again a part of Neil in his brilliance that he completely got not just, you know, how they wrote a melody or how they made a guitar jangle but he knew that that was the sort of lyric that feasibly Lennon would have come up with, and I think that's also part of its brilliance.
4: Right, because we know he could write very funny songs. Those Python songs are... Very, very funny. And some of those are just completely absurdist kind of things. And and with the Bonzo Doodah band, we also know that he was very great when it came to absurdist lyrics. And this stuff, yeah, it just it plays so well. Yeah, Cheese and Onions, it's an absurd song. But my God, does it have a fantastic melody? Is it so fun to sing along with? It just everything works with these. And it's not the audio equivalent of a fart joke or anything. Now, I love... I love Weird Al Yankovic, uh, 100%. We talked about him before on the UHF uh, episode. And I wish that Weird Al would do a project, something like this, some sort of like a musical type of a project. You know, UHF was fantastic. There weren't a lot of songs in that, and there actually probably could have been more. So I'm not shitting on Weird Al when it comes to this stuff. It's just the different variations of parody and satire that you have throughout this. And we've talked about parody and satire on this show many times. And you look at something like the Ruddles, and you look at something like, um, you know, it's interesting because the Ruddles, they didn't get their start on SNL, but there was definitely that SNL influence, and they were introduced to America through SNL, through Eric Idle being on there a couple times. And then you look at other things like the Blues Brothers, which was also an SNL thing, or Spinal Tap, which was also an SNL thing, you know. So you get to look at those three movies and talk about three very different films in so far as, you know, the blues brothers, it's a comedy, but a lot of it is played straight. Those musical acts are played very straight. And then you have another musical parody mockumentary film with spinal tap, but it is so different from, the Ruttles, because you're you're both seeing their past and their present, so it, it plays out in a much different way, and you're getting a lot more of, uh, concert footage than you are when it comes to the Ruttles. So there are many stripes when it comes to parody, and those three films, especially talking about the Ruttles and, and um, uh, Spinal Tap, this is Spinal Tap, they play with parody so well, and they they just become these really hallmarks of how it's done.
1: I think the other word that I want to use in here is pastiche, and these are definitely parodies, but there's an album from the group XTC, which I absolutely love. They did an album where they changed their names. I can't remember, but they they came up with suitably funny, esque type names, and they call themselves the Dukes of Stratosphere, and it was Andy Partridge's ambition. He had always wanted, even like in the early days of XTC, to make an album of songs that were psychedelic in nature. If you listen to this album, which has, I think, an EP and an album that they released in tandem, uh, the name of the the compilation is called uh, Chips from the Chocolate Fireball. And every song is positively a, oh, this is their kink song. Oh, this is their stone song and their Beatles song is a tune called Mole from the Ministry. And the thing was, the first time I heard that, I thought it was less so much a pastiche on "I the Walrus, but it sounded to me like it was a pastiche on Piggy in the Middle. So, I thought, if you actually watch the film clip of that, it's funny – and but it's it's more Ruttlesque than Beatlesque. So I'd be very surprised if Andy Partridge wasn't a, a, a huge fan of uh, this film. But that's more pastiche, uh, a love of the music rather than try to send it up. And yet there's still something very funny about the the film clip and um, almost and the way the song pans out as well.
5: I should probably point out that I used to be the drummer for The Baller Man, which at the time was the world's only known dukes of stratosphere tribute
1: oh my goodness what made you want to do a a, a dukes of stratosphere tribute band i mean did you do any xtc stuff as well
5: no it was all dukes of stratosphere and other bands that didn't really exist so we actually covered cheese and onions in that band we did uh uh, the name's escaping me the band from wild
4: in the Streets. it was max frost and the troopers
5: but yeah, that was all, uh, I, I'm in a band right now called the Jennifers and the Jennifers had been one of my favorite bands in the nineties and then they broke up. And then I got together a few years later to jam with some of the people who had been in the Jennifers and we were like, well, what do you want to play? And we were like, Hey, do we all know the the Dukes of Stratosphere? Let, let's learn a couple of those songs. And it just turned into this tribute band. And then over the course of like a year or two playing that they decide, let's put the Jennifers back together. And uh, and so I've been in the Jennifer since 2001. <laughs> That's how long ago it was. We did the Bowlerman.
4: So Spinal Tap comes out in 1984 and takes what the Ruddles had done and makes it takes it even farther. Because like I said, Spinal Tap was still together when that movie was being made, and you see these movies and they play it so well, and then you look at something like. Bruce Willis and The Return of Bruno where he's doing almost the exact same thing that these other movies would try to do. I don't know if it was just the lack of quality of the music or the lack of quality of the filmmaking, but it just comes across so phony and so, so trite that you're just like, okay, you know, like he's got the talking heads and it's all of not the band. He's got all of these people saying, singing the praise of The band, and you compare that. You compare Michael J. Fox in The Return of Bruno to Mick Jagger in All You Need Is Cash, and it is just worlds apart. And I think the biggest secret to that, and you know, you can compare the Mick Jagger in All You Need Is Cash versus Paul Simon in All You Need Is Cash, and I think one of them is definitely much more successful because Jagger is basically replacing the Ruddles, you know, the Beatles with the Ruddles, and saying. I would think a lot of truth to what he's, he's talking about and it comes across so well, whereas you're just making it up whole cloth when it comes to Michael J. Fox talking about Bruno. I don't think he had anybody else in mind while he was saying that. So it just comes across really super phony.
6: Yeah. I'm a collector. from am a Bruno file.
3: We call him. There's about 20 of us um, all over the world. There's that one guy. Uh, uh, Malaysia. Tang Un uh, writes
2: me all the time. It takes a lot about six months to get here, but he uh, he loves Bruno,
1: loves him. I think the language barrier helps. I think Eric Idle was on record as saying that as soon as anyone who they spoke to was able to just talk about the Ruttles or, or be able to talk about the Beatles as the Ruttles, they were able to be a little bit more open and honest and say things that you know they wouldn't otherwise dare to say about the Beatles but oh oh okay we have a surrogate okay now I can really say what what's going on in the back of my mind so I I think like uh Mick had gone and said to Eric well what do you want me to do how do you want me to be and he said oh no no just be Mick oh okay talk about the Beatles oh okay there's that um story that Mick Jagger goes and tells which is you know I mean in the Ruttles world well everything's true but of course in the Beatles world it wouldn't have been so but maybe it was what Mick had actually thought where he said oh yeah the uh, uh, Dirk and Nasty came along to see us, and they just wrote a song on the spot, and we thought it was crap, so we didn't do it. But you know, the truth of the matter was, you know, Paul and John did actually come to see them and went off for ten minutes to the other room and came back with um, uh, "I Want to Be Your Man," which I think was their first big hit. So, you know, maybe it was just wishful thinking or rewriting history on Mick's part. He was able to say, yes, we rejected the Rattles, but you couldn't reject Lennon and McCartney, Mick.
4: I don't think there were any talking heads in This Is Spinal Tap, were there? It was just Marty DeBerge kind of giving us the intro and then, taking us more into like the past and the way that they mixed the past in with the present in that documentary, I thought was really well done it 's kind of the same thing when it comes to the ruddles there There are some talking heads, but it 's not overly done, and I think that they do it they have these voices of authority when they need to and in, in order to fill some stuff in and especially to have some great running jokes and to have the whole thing about why the ruttles were so popular which all comes down to their trousers and that running gag throughout the entire film is just it's gorgeous i
1: love that joke i know that we're going to come later on to the sequel can't buy me lunch but i think that the whole um, the trousers thing was had become something of a greatest hit. And um, yeah, look, I'll leave it for the second half of the show. The story of the Ruttles is the story of the Beatles
4: as if they were from another dimension. And that's one of the things that I like about this documentary so much is that it's looking at these four guys and their story. And it's that whole, rise to fame and decline you know it's just the same thing that you see in so many great movies so many great stories is where those people you know had everything just all those those things came together at the right time they had all of these hours of practice when they were you know over in germany people didn't necessarily want them to be in germany yada yada they came together they did this then they come back to england they become these smash sensations they finally break into america they have their thing there and just all of these beats all of these story points are there and i was talking before about how familiar are you with the story of the beatles when it comes to this and i think now those story points have become so familiar as far as like the guys the scrappy guys in their garage and then they get their big break and then they do this and they do that that it just becomes like the story of so many band documentaries or so many musical films i mean this is it's the wonders it's so many things that we've already seen before that that you know that came after this but really this puts it on the map and puts it into a form that we then again see over and over and over again when it comes to these both fictionalized films and documentaries too
1: there are some moments that I'm watching in the Ruttles film and wondering, well, how many gags does the casual Beatles fan actually get? Do they pick Oh yeah, I know what they're talking about. I mean there there's obviously the big things where they go to Buckingham Palace to get the MBE from the Queen. Okay, I think, you know, if you even a casual acquaintance with Beatles lore, would you'd know that. But, you know, then there are there are other little things. I was trying to consult with this fellow, Mitch Axelrod. Hello, Mitch, if you're listening. He hosts a terrific Beatles podcast called Fab Four Free For All. And there's this little thing throughout, uh, the, well, there's a couple of times in the first film where Eric Idle as Dirk McQuickley uh, does this thing with his hand where he puts his hands together and, and you know, points to his watch and says, yeah, I've got to go to sleep and you know, puts his hand, his head on his hands as if it's a pillow and he's got to go to sleep. And I had this feeling that Paul McCartney had really actually done that. I've seen some footage, and he said he thinks that might have been in the Males Brothers documentary about the Beatles' first trip to the US, but I haven't seen that film, so I can't be sure, but I know I've seen McCartney do that somewhere. So, it's little details like that that sort of bring out the authenticity of this film, and that's you know one of those things which it's there, there are some gags there which I obviously had to have for people who had seen the big headlines. And I am bearing in mind that we're talking about this in two thousand and nineteen, as opposed to nineteen seventy eight. I don't know whether people were sort of over it or people had known a lot more than they sort of know nowadays because you know future generations they don't care as much. But I like to think that little things like the the head on the hands was just more the real Beatles nerd thing. And as Eric Idle had been saying in commentaries and in interviews, they had access to George Harrison who was also telling them little things which the general public might not have known. So you've got that mix of the things that everyone knows and the little things which just the Beatles geeks knew. And it, it seems almost like a hard thing to say that during the Beatles era when everyone on the planet knew and loved them, But as I sort of went more to the counterculture and then the years after their existence when the rest of the world found other bands to love, that we have to say Beatles geeks because in 1964 and 65, maybe every music listening person on the planet was a Beatles geek.
4: Yeah, though my mom will tell you that she was more of a Rolling Stones girl than a Beatles girl, though she did have a lot of those early Beatles albums, including the ones that had things like Who Would You Want to Marry and Who You know, What's Paul's Favorite Color and those kind of things inside of the album, which were amazing.
1: I've got a Beatles book called um, The Beatles Illustrated History, which was my Bible for many years, and they actually have a cutout from one of those teen fan magazines, which said, What's Your Favorite? Drink, favorite hair color on a girl. Uh, what sort of what sort of girls do you like to go out with? What's your favorite song? Who are your favorite songwriters? All that sort of thing that uh, it, that was big in those teenage magazines back in the time. It seems ludicrous to us now. Really, do did fans care about that? But you know, evidently they did.
5: Have, have either of you seen the uh, the recent documentary, Good Old Frida?
1: Yes, I have. Yep.
5: I forget what her official title was. Frida was this woman that worked for the Beatles pretty much the entire time they were together from Liverpool on, you know, she kind of handled the fan club. She kind of collected hair and gave it the fans and all this stuff. And it's, and, but she completely stayed out of the spotlight. People didn't really know her name. I don't know for decades. In fact, the, the film was made by, uh, People, uh, there's people in the film relatives that didn't know of her involvement with the Beatles.
1: Yeah, she, I think, was the one of the few people who all four Beatles stayed in contact with like long after that they broke up and she was the one who everyone still had something nice to say about there was no legal issues she was loyal and faithful to them she never sort of gave any details away didn't sort of say hey hey girls the Beatles are going to be at this particular place at this particular time go out and scream scream your lungs out she had a position of trust and she maintained that trust for years. And I think, like, even in the, the latter years, if, you know, McCartney was in Liverpool or Ringo had come back to Liverpool, we're talking like, you know, in in the 21st century, they'd stop by and see Frieda. She was the one that they loved and was definitely a worthy subject of a documentary. It was a really good film, as I remember.
4: I love those little things, like Barry Wom, the drummer from The Rattles, wanting to open up a um, a barbershop, or have, what was it? He wants a,
5: he wants to be a hairdresser or two. He wants to be two or hairdressers, two.
4: yes. <laughs> Which then I think comes back as the haberdasher in uh, the Spinal Tap.
0: What size do you wear, sir? And then you answer me. Seven and a quarter. I think we have that.
4: But that and, – and then you watch The Complete Beatles and you see Ringo talking about wanting to be a hairdresser and open up a salon and that s- clip of him. And I don't know what that clip is from of him walking through the hair salon. What is that?
1: Don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe that was one of those uh, Pathé News type of things. But, yeah, I mean, the, sometimes you don't need to alter the truth. Sometimes the truth is funny enough.
4: First and foremost, and I'm sorry if I'm a broken record when it comes to this, but The Ruttles is a great documentary, and then it just slides that humor in. The things that we we're saying, like the music, is not a outright out and out parody, but you listen to these songs and you're like, oh, okay, that is a you know that sounds. Kind of similar to A Day in the Life. That sounds very similar to I Am the Walrus. That sounds a little bit like this. Or what you were saying, Morris, as far as that's the guitar sound from this one, but yet it's more the chorus from this song. So, yeah, that pastiche of all of those different pieces coming together and just working so well. And like you said before, Skiz, this album, the Ruddles album, is so darn good that you can watch it without Needing to know even who the Ruddles were and just enjoy the music. And I'm curious when it comes to the Ruddles songs, what, what are your favorites? Morris, what's your favorite Ruddles song?
1: I've got a soft spot for some of the early style stuff as well as the later stuff, which I think probably would be more people's picks, but I'd, I'd probably say that. I must be in love, which I think was the one that started it all on Rutland Weekend Television, is a big favourite, and probably from the latest stuff, uh, Double Back Alley and Piggy in the Middle would be uh, my other two favourites. So yeah, those. I mean, I, lo- I love it all, but yeah, those three are definitely highlights for me from that album.
4: I asked for one, you give me three. That's okay. That's all
1: right. That's uh, it's what Beatles fans. it's what Beatles fans do. It's, uh, rattle fans do.
5: It's kind of like trying to pick a favourite Beatles song. I, I don't know that I could do it, but. Uh, with the Ruddles, I guess the one song that I have covered in at least two bands now, Cheese and Onions, would have to be my favorite.
4: The style of this movie and the way that they integrate... The footage is so wonderful. Like it took me a long time to realize that they didn't go out and film a bunch of screaming girls for this movie. That they are doing that "dead men wear don't wear plaid" kind of thing, where they're matching up the footage between what the Ruddles are doing and then what is happening in the the studio audience or the the other audiences, and just that that way that they make. The film look old, or they'll match the grain, they'll match the lighting, and just really do this, and just the attention to detail when it comes to like the album covers. I mean, now with you know Photoshop and what we have today, it would be pretty darn easy to recreate these album covers. But for them in 1978, doing this, I mean, it must have been so much work to put everything together the costumes the luggage everything looks so perfect that they didn't have to do this but those details and that attention to detail i think is what makes it so that here we are in 2019 still talking about this movie from all these years ago from 40 you know it's stunning to to look at all of those things and be like wow they this was not put together in an afternoon you know this is a, a 66 when it ran on tv 76 minute movie and that they put so, so much attention into this—it's really stunning.
5: Yeah, I think Idol said it was made in like six weeks. I think something like that—that's
1: crazy. Yeah, but that might be the filming, not just the pre- not the prep work. The prep work might have taken longer because you know, you mentioned Mike about the about the costumes and things like even the attention to detail on when they're doing get up and go at, on, on the um, the surrogate apple. Uh, rooftop, and they're wearing the same clothes that the Beatles wore on the the, the apple rooftop right you know, Barry's jacket. everything looks the same.
4: I can't even imagine how much he must have studied that footage of the Beatles. I mean, it's not like now where you can just YouTube something or Google something and find photos of these things and be able to be like, okay, yeah, that, that color jacket, that color pants, the, you know, this style of this and that and the other thing. I mean, just to go through that, that footage and be able to take all those notes and be able to recreate all that stuff, you know, in 1978 is just, it's, it's crazy to think that they had the ability to do all that stuff and, and, you know, like I said, to match the grain of these things. I mean, it looks, yes, there's some differences and everything, but it sure looks great. And, and you know, you, you brought up Yellow Submarine, the style of the animation, just to animate that sequence of cheese and onions. I mean, it, it looks brilliant and it plays so wonderfully.
1: I'd long wondered who was behind that animated sequence because all the attention to detail would have been one thing if they'd drawn the characters in a similar style, but they go for the same level of thinking. I think like early on in Cheese and Onions where you see these characters, uh, I think there's a woman who takes an ice cream cone and pushes it at her head repeatedly. And that's similar to like in the Eleanor Rigby sequence in Yellow Submarine where you see footballers – kicking the football, I think in a rotoscoped sort of fashion. You look at the credits at the end of the film and it just says, I think, little big films of London, but there's nowhere that I could find on the internet that said, well, who is this group, the little big films? I thought there must have been someone who'd worked for King Features, which had been behind Yellow Submarine, who worked in this. There's no way that they could have just imitated that, and I think in... The Q&A that you uh, sent us, Mike, where there's um, everyone, I think, apart from Ricky Fatar, who appears at a a screening of um, All You Need Is Cash. And someone from the audience, thank goodness, asked that question who was behind it. And they said that it was, I think, a fellow called Tony White who had worked on uh, Yellow Submarine. It, It just makes complete sense that they would have had to have gone and consulted someone on that film to get that level of authenticity. I don't think they could have done it without it. I mean, there there was a lot of research, obviously, that went into the making of the film, but animation is a completely different beast altogether. And, you know, really kudos to them, because that three-minute sequence of cheese and onions, that would have taken, I imagine that would have taken them quite a fair bit of time to do, but it was so worth it. And to your point, Mike, about, about the authenticity, think about it. This is a television movie before the internet, before chat groups, before all these Beatle geeks would have come up and said, oh, they didn't quite get that right. This is just we show it once and you see it and you walk away and any commentary about it is in the school playground or – the water cooler at work. There's no video record, no home video recorders. There's no home VHS entertainment, no internet. So the fact that they put all this level of detail for a what would have been presumably a one-off screening tele movie was just amazing.
5: Yeah, I'm trying to think of any other TV specials from the '70s that I would go out and buy on Blu-ray and watch every couple of years.
4: Maybe the Steve Martin TV specials, which Gary Weiss also had a hand in some of those, too. And I did. So. I went out and bought those. But I can't think of too many other TV specials uh, of this. I mean, you know, TV movies, yes. and TV movies, some of those were masterfully done. But as far as a special like this, something so short and everything. And it, it's interesting because you were on the Nothing Lasts Forever episode, I believe. And that was another Director who had a, a similar pedigree as far as working for SNL, having a lot of SNL actors in there, and this having the SNL connection is is interesting too. And when you start to see SNL actors pop up, it, is this really kind of a nice marriage between some Python-esque humor and SNL humor, which are really two very different breeds of humor? You know, I was talking before about. The, uh, you know, the, how Spinal Tap plays against the Ruttles, And when you think about how SNL plays against Monty Python, they are so completely different. But I think this was a nice marriage of those two styles. And when you get those characters that show up, when you get those actors like Bill Murray the K, or when you get, um, Belushi's in here oh god he is so great in here and i'm just so happy when he shows up and having uh franken and davis as his bodyguards
5: (laughs) i still crack up up, up the uh the gilda Radner scene the first thing she says when he says i wonder if you wouldn't mind answering some questions and she says i'm sorry i don't answer questions
0: the most feared promoter in the world ron decline you ask me where's the money where's the money i mean i don't know where the money is I've never been good with figures, you know that. I don't know anything about math. It was never my good subject. I don't know where the money is, but if you need money, I'll give you money. But this, this really surprises me. I'm really shocked. Because I thought we had something here a lot stronger than just business. (sighs) I mean, you know I love you more than I love my own family. I do. I want to protect you. I want to help you. I want to protect you from the outside world, protect you,
4: protect you from people like me, you know, and I think I'm doing a good job. Alan Klein is a subject rife for uh <laughs> for parody. you know a lot of people place the the blame of uh the Beatles breaking up on Yoko Ono, but I think Alan Klein had a fair bit to do with that as well i mean alan klein you know i I cursed his name many times throughout the years being a fan of Alejandro Hodorowski and just the way that he sat on those on Hodorowski's movies you know I don't know if a lot of people realize that you know he was. Uh, alan Klein was part of Abco, uh and also you know Apple had uh, money inside of the uh, the the Hodorowski films, you know bringing those out because John Lennon was a big fan of Hodorowski's work so alan klein was was uh, my nemesis for a long time when it came to that, not as much as george martin and i 'm very surprised that they didn 't have a George martin character in here because George martin in that complete Beatles documentary that guy drives me fucking nuts man just the way that he is so full of himself and that it was him that came up with all of this stuff and he might have that he might be a, a might have been a brilliant brilliant man but he is not afraid to tell you how brilliant he was
5: and Jeff Emmerich sort of gets like not mentioned at all by him
1: I was going to ask Mike have you seen a British show called Big Train I have not I don't share your disdain for George Martin. I do think he was a brilliant guy, and but he was surrounded by a brilliant team. However, uh, on this show, Big Train, which would not have existed if not for Python, it's absolutely fantastic, there's a sketch that they did where George Martin is – telling the story of you know his his involvement with the Beatles and all the great things that he did and then you see him being kidnapped by terrorists and he's held in a he, he's held in containment somewhere in, a, in an unknown Middle Eastern country for for ages
7: okay thank you very much ladies and gentlemen we're about to start a press conference now mr. Hooper and mr. Martin are extremely tired and we'll only be asking a few questions now okay so thank you very much thank you.
0: Mr. Martin, were you ever afraid for your life? Well, the Beatles certainly never took drugs in front of me. Um, I was always vehemently against the drugs scene, particularly the heavier stuff, herring, LST. And having said that, when we were in the studios, quite often the lads would nip off to the loo for ten minutes, smoke a bit of pot, come back, wreathed in smiles, It'd be a bit of giggling and horseplay, and then we'd carry on with work. But generally, I tended to turn a blind eye. <laughs> Do, do, do you think the release uh, represents a positive
8: shift in attitudes towards the West, or is it just a publicity stunt?
0: Well, I never really understood all the criticisms against Ringo Strumming. As far as I was concerned, he was an inventive and powerful player. You only have to listen to some tracks like, I don't know, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, uh, Hey Jude, Strawberry Fields. I could go on. Absolute de force.
1: When you went and said uh, that oh, George Martin's my nemesis, I thought... Yeah, all right. Well, yeah, you're in good company with the big train people. But anyone out there who hasn't seen this, just look it up in YouTube. Very, very funny. Who,
5: who's the character in the roles? Is it Dick Jaws, the guy that signs them up for Lifetime and gets very wealthy, and then they keep showing him in the control room of the recording studio fighting with Leggy? Is he a parody of a real person? Because would that be George Martin?
1: No, no, no. Did read somewhere who Dick Jaws was supposed to be, but I can't recall who.
5: I don't really know the Beatles history, like, memorized, so yeah. I don't know if that's a real guy or not.
4: Is Leggy Mountbatten, is that strictly Brian Epstein, or is there other people mixed in with
1: him? No, I think it's supposed to be Brian Epstein, although they've made Leggy, I mean, he never actually gets to say anything in the film, so you don't really know how his character would be. But, yeah, I guess presumably as the the character who finds them in, in, in the cavern. The rat cellar?
4: Not the cellar of rats, but the cellar where rats live?
1: Also, this comes back down to the level of detail. You sort of wonder how much people would have remembered in 1978 about this, because there's that great line where he says that Leggy Mountbatten had written his biography called A Cellar Full of Goys, which was one moment that did crack me up. And of course, Brian Epstein's Memoirs were called a cellar full of noise, and I think John Lennon very unkindly said, oh, "Perhaps you should call it a cellar full of boys, Brian." <laughs> but and then, of course, there was the moment later on where the ruffles are under the spell of um, Arthur Sultan, which was I thought particularly inspired. And they say, "Oh, he's he's gone and uh, he, he, he's left us." Oh no, we're absolutely stunned. He's emigrated to Australia. And that that whole, we're stunned, we don't know what to think, if after you know, the news of uh, Brian having uh, committed suicide, there was a very similar sort of press conference with, uh, I think, George and John, where they're both saying, well, we're absolutely stunned, we can't believe it. I was so happy to find
4: out that Henry Wolf, uh, the, uh, Arthur Sultan character is the same guy who played the photographer in Rocky Horror Picture Show.
5: Oh, yeah. I didn't recognize him without you mentioned it.
4: Yeah. And a lot of these guys were on that Rutland weekend television show that helped really, you know, that was where the Ruddles made their first appearance. And that was Innocent and, and Idol, uh, working together a lot on this stuff. So it's good that they had both of those camps to be able to pull those actors from. And it sounds like from that same press conference or that same, uh, Q and a, it sounds like they, after a lot of the shooting was done, that's when Weiss, uh, used, uh, the SNL people and kind of peppered them in. Cause you notice a lot of them more towards the end, I would think than the beginning, uh, especially Gilda and, and Belushi and the Murray, the K stuff. Uh, there's a little bit more of that. And some of the outtakes, end up showing up in uh, can't buy me lunch. And then poor Dan Aykroyd, it sounds like he actually had a longer part to it, uh, that, uh, Eric Idle just keeps badgering Brian Thy, the guy who didn't sign the Ruttles until he ends up committing suicide. Did you guys read this? I seem to
5: remember that from when it aired, not just in 78, but also on public television and forgot all about it until researching for, for this podcast that, yeah, the version on the DVD and the VHS release didn't have the suicide.
0: Brian Fly was a top recording manager in London in 1962. Mr. Pye, you've been known for many years as the man who turned down the Ruttle.
5: Yeah, that's right.
0: You said that electric guitar groups were on their way out and would never make any money in the 60s. <laughs>
1: <coughs> yes, I did.
0: So you turned down... All those millions of dollars worth of sales. You turned down all those thousands upon thousands of singles. All those gold discs. Yeah, that's right. What's it like to be such a jerk? What? Does it bother you being such a nerd? Yeah, come on, come on. You can't call me that. Does it concern you that people say that you're a twat? Yeah, now, come on. A pillock, a burk. A man who has the brains of a duck. The business sense of a cretin and the ideas of an idiot of three. <laughs> Does it concern you that you have no business sense whatsoever. <laughs> Brian Fry, the man who, who turned down the Ruffles.
1: Yeah, until you sent that link, that was all completely news to me. Once again, that is based on a character. I think it was a fellow called Dick Rowe who ran Decca Records. I mean, every company had rejected the Beatles before they were taken on by EMI, but... Decker had given them the opportunity to record a series of demos, and you can get that bootlegged. I think it's about the one thing that the Beatles haven't gone and remastered and taken out of the garage. Uh But there was a series of songs that they recorded as a demo, I think, which might have even had Pete Best on drums. He listened to that thought. Mm, nah, and I mean, listening to those songs, you sort of can understand it. You sort of think, well, you know, this isn't the magical band that had recorded later on for EMI, or even the band of that had all that power, all that energy that you might have heard on that Star Club Hamburg bootleg which you know sounds terrible from a recorded perspective but they do sound like an exciting band and you don't get any of that out of the decker recording so dick Rowe probably later on thought hang on this isn't the same band that recorded those demos for me why uh, why did i reject these guys so
4: i was amazed that they didn't have a running gag of the fifth beetle because that was like for so long it'd be like who was considered the fifth beetle you know Stu sutcliffe pete best billy preston all this kind of stuff though i have to say that's one of my favorite uh eddie murphy bits is when he revealed that he was the fifth Beatle. i don't know if you guys remember that what was his name clarence i think it was uh, i don't remember
2: this <laughs>
7: hi this is buzzy free and welcome to rock and roll and then some our guest today is here because this is the 20th anniversary of the beatles invasion of america His name is Clarence Walker, and he claims that he conceived the group's image and wrote most of the music, and was in fact the fifth Beatle and head singer before being kicked out of the group in 1963. Hello, Clarence, welcome. Hello, man you invented the beatles yeah man i was ripped off by the whole group and the whole group got a behind kick and coming to him when i see him
2: i've
7: been looking for them boys since 1963 and that's why they got that around the clock security and them gates around the house because they know that when clarence walker find them, you gonna take a chunk out there behind <laughs> clarence can you prove you were the fifth Beatle? <laughs> yes i can prove it man and um i suggest you take that sarcasm out your voice all right because i'm serious <laughs> I'm sorry, Clarence, it just the whole thing seems so absurd. Yeah, well, then say it seems absurd then, man. Don't patronize me, all right? Because i kicked kick you behind right here on national television. <laughs> I was the fifth Beatle. I have proof. All right, what is that proof, Clarence? Well, here's a photograph of us back in 1962 before they kicked me out of the group. Well, now, I never heard any saxophone. I see you're holding a saxophone there. I never heard any sax on any early Beatle music. You crazy, man? Most of them early songs were mostly sax, man. But they stole it from me. What they did, they took my voice out, they took the saxophone out, and was gone, all right? I brought some of the early music, and I have it in a medley form so you can listen to it. You can hear us in our original jam session. So listen to the original beat, is here. Listen up. Love me. This I got to tell you, I really
4: doesn't prove anything. I mean, you get to dub that over. I'm sorry.
7: I didn't dub that over, man. That's the original music. If you want to hear something else, just to prove that they stole it from me and they know that they ripped me off, I can play this thing backwards and you can hear them talking about it. You hear John Lennon? I play it in reverse. Listen very close. Listen.
3: Hey, Paul, let's get rid of clowns and steal all his good ideas.
9: Sunday, Clarence, you
7: convinced me, and I hope you get everything that you deserve. So thanks a lot, man. You see, I don't want much. I'm a very modest man. You know, all I want to do is get my rent straight, get my head together. All I need is about seven grand, $7,200 to get straight. That's all I want. I ain't greedy. Seven grand is all I, I need. Oh, I ain't well, that's greedy. Thank you, But they got behind tickets coming the to me. Well, good luck, I want you to know a chunk out of each of y'all's, I want you to
1: know a chunk out of each y'all's, There's the great session and jazz and funk drummer Bernard Purdy, who I think in the last few years has been going around saying that he was the fifth Beatle and all those early Beatles records, it's not Ringo drumming because he couldn't drum for shit. And it's me being the drummer on those early Beatles records. So that's what sort of brought that. When I saw that Eddie Murphy thing, it brought back uh, Bernard Purdy's claims to mind and, I'm not sure if he's still making that claim, but he's a very charismatic guy and, and, and an amazing drummer. But no, Bernard, I don't think that's you on those recordings. So he's not Blind Lemon Peel? Blind Lemon rattling. Oh, that, that's, Yeah, he also said that he was an influence on Frank Sinatra. And who was it else? Was it Mort Sahl?
4: Every time they're filming a documentary, he says they sold everything Morris I really appreciate you uh, finding that memo of all the things that they needed to cut from the movie that was fantastic I
1: I think I got that from the actual Ruffles Facebook page and thought oh yep this needs to be quoted there was was some amazing stuff in there I think only one or two things that sort of actually ended up in the film I thought you're Cutting that you're cutting that
4: and I'm curious as far as what made it to air versus what's on the d v d and v h s because like you, you said skiz that that moment of of uh thigh killing himself it's like okay well, that's not on any version that you can presently see, so I guess that must have shown on t v like you were saying, and so I'm curious what else was on t v and what wasn't on t v because it sounds like there's ten minutes that's on the VHS and DVD that isn't on, wasn't in the TV broadcast, but then, you know, it's like a give and take as far as what was there and what wasn't.
5: Yeah, I, I'd be curious to uh, to know what the differences are, because it, it does make me think that there were things that I saw on TV that I don't see on the DVD you would think would be the other way around. I don't know for sure. And that's just that suicide is the only thing that John, I'd forgotten all about it, you know, until this past week. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Like I remember being kind of creeped out by it, but uh, but I do remember it. I I, I don't really remember him saying using the word asshole on TV. I think that I
4: really like, don't blown think that mind. they would have uh, <laughs> shown that had that on TV, unless it was bleeped. <laughs> and it I have could to, have to been say bleeped, that where the scene ends it. makes total sense. Ending it with how does it feel to be such an asshole and then cut really it's a it's a it's a good cut. Uh, so let's see. Um... Page five of the script. This is to Lauren Michaels from Jay Otley. And this is the uh, subject late night movie. All you need is cash. The life story of the Ruddles by Eric Idle from July 25th, 1977. And I won't read everything, but on page five, delete, quote, old peeling, large breasted ladies picks. Page eight, delete, while his father was so stuck up, he wore swimming swimming trunks in the bath to stop him from looking down on the unemployed, which I love that.
1: Thank goodness that made it into the film. Yeah, that
4: made it in. Uh, here and throughout, the character Leggy Mountbatten must not be played as a gay stereotype. Page 9, the tight trousers must not display bulging crotches. Page 10, delete asshole. Page 12, delete. I've been in the garment trade, and I knew a thing or two about inside legs, and these were winners. Which also is there, right? Page 16. Are the inaudible portions of the Jagger interview available? Please forward interviewers' questions to be filmed. Okay. Uh, page 17. Delete Palladium. Uh, delete Warwick Hotel on page 30. Delete Rolling Stones. Okay. Uh, on page 34. Page 43. Delete fucking. Okay. Uh, I can see that. Page 45A, caution on staging, quote, he keeps treading in dung. Page 45A, quote, all the men run out and stand behind a hedge. Please make a, it a tall hedge and no unzipping of fly or sound, of effect, sound effects of urination. And then page 50B, see cover Stig with no trousers. Stig must be adequately clothed for television. So those were some of the highlights from uh, the the censor memo, it looks like. Man, yeah, I want to uh, see that. I mean, with all the things script? that Eric Idle has cashed in on over the years, you would think that a book of the original script and especially because he talked about the original treatment that he wrote and he put in pictures from the Beatles, and, and was basically saying like this will be like this and this will be like that and that's the one that he gave to lauren michaels that got approved before he went and wrote the whole thing out i would love to see both of those
5: it seems like a book of all things Ruddles is i thought for sure there do. would have
4: been one I kept looking for something like that because I was like, okay, well, where is it? Where's the coffee table book that has all the album covers in it? And, you know, you can go out to like the Ruddles Wikipedia and it's all written as if these things were real and they have all of the tracks for all of the albums and what was released on the CD versus – on the album and all all these kind of things. And then you look and it's like almost every album release date is April 1st. So it's like, okay, none of this stuff is real, but it is done so well that again, you would think that there would be a compilation of this, that we would get those things. Like, like looking at the, uh, the, even the, the CD for the um, Spinal Tap and you see all those other album covers and you see Shit Sandwich and all those th- kind of things. It's like, okay, those exist someplace, but I want to see, you know, the whole history of the Ruddles written up like this.
5: I mean, even a book version of the Ruddles as if they were real as well as a book version of the Ruttles, the phenomenon that we're discussing. I mean, either of those books or a book that does both of those, I would pre-order that.
4: All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with the Ruttles co-director, Gary Weiss, and the second is with Ron Nasty himself, Neil Innes. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages.
2: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
8: Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneve.com wants to give you more with ten free gifts first you'll get a sexy surprise for her second a specially selected toy for him and third a little something we know you'll both enjoy plus you'll get six full length adult movies on DVD and number ten free shipping on your entire order so what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts it's not hard Just go to AdamandEve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out AdamandEve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B o o t h adam and
4: i know you know who i'm talking about it's that guy yeah yeah with the eyebrows he's, right he's in yeah, a million have the bushy movies. eyebrows sometimes they're bushy but he also sometimes have a mustache yeah it would, then, but but he shaved well he, no he did you know who i'm talking about you see you've seen the, him in a million movies. we just saw him in that one thing yeah he looks like a pug <laughs> Listen to me, Chris Gore and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat
1: Podcast. You got questions,
2: sometimes we have the answers.
1: I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to the Projection Booth, the ultimate movie
4: podcast. How did you end up getting into the business, into show business?
6: It was, uh... A beach bum and I lived in Hawaii and I was a surfer type, not a gremlin surfer type, but I surfed and I lived in Hawaii and I played volleyball. That's why I went over there to play for this team. My point is I came back and I was hanging out on the beach and I met Sharon Peckinpah, Sam Peckinpah's daughter. I got friendly with her. We started living together. She was in high school. I was about 20-some-odd. We actually lived together in her mother's house. Sam and Marie were separated. I lived with in the mother's house. Of course, I met Sam. I took still photographs at the time, just, you know, for my own thing, just crazy things and this and that. Sam saw him, and he liked them, And, of course, I knew him, too, because I was with the daughter. He asked me if I'd like to make a film about the making of his next film, and this is a film following The Wild Bunch called Cable Hogue*. So I uh, got a camera and my camera assistant, and we went out to the desert, and we drove out there in an old, uh, regular old Volkswagen. He bought me an Aeroflex, an Aries, a great little camera. I uh, began my filmmaking career, as it were, I was very fortunate. One is, is because I shot reams and reams of film on this little documentary on Cable Hogue, and I had brothers. So I had all these old timers and people coming by and talking to me and me showing them the stuff. And then I wouldn't cut there. I cut down. Why is that? Well, you know the motion. Anyway, I uh, was great. I had a full-on education in the year that I probably took in making a film. I ended up uh, making it with a guy named Gil Dennis. I don't know what's happened to Gil. He was a screenwriter, and Sam thought I could use a little narrative help or whatever it was. You know, you didn't fuck around with Sam. He was the boss, and I was a kind of a hippie at the time—not kind of—I was a full-on hippie with hair, and whether I had a beard at those days, I don't know. And so I uh, ran around Warner Brothers making this film after we were in the desert for quite a while. So uh, it was cool. The film turned out fine and uh, still around somewhere. And that's how I got my film education. And then I moved on to shooting a lot of music for various things uh, with handheld. I was in the kind of a group of people here in Los Angeles with handheld um Cameraman And I learned from a guy, Baird Bryant, who was a magnificent guy and great handheld photographer. We were shooting with Claire's cameras at the time, 16 millimeter. And I ended up shooting a lot of stuff. That's how I got into filmmaking.
4: I know one of your early projects was working on a documentary about Jimi Hendrix. How did that come about?
6: In the 70s. And um, Hendrix had died. And it came about through, as I recall, mind you, this is a while back, and I've been lived a lot of film stuff, and so some of this, I'm a little vague, but in that one, there's a friend of mine, uh, Joe Boyd, who worked, I don't know whether he was working at Warner's at the time in the music department, but Mo Austin, the head of Warner Music, was maybe even signed Hendrix. I'm not quite sure. A terrific man, Mo Oshman. He and Joe, I don't know whether Joe came to me or how it all happened actually, but I ended up collaborating with him and a guy named John Head who did the research. Mo wanted to make the film because the music track alone would have paid for it. In those days, the budget was very small which i have forgotten what it is, but it, you know what I mean. And uh, he figured he couldn't, so he told, talked to the film department, and they didn't care, you know. They'll release it. So we took quite a while, and the research was, we had giant card catalogs, of which I think I still have. I've been contacted about the when, but we... Got every piece of film there was on Hendrix, every still, everything, and found out, you know, researched, you know, his friends, his girlfriends, his this, his that, and we went out and made the film. Yeah, Joe produced it, and John uh, was given the credit of research, I guess, I can't remember. But anyway, yeah, and I directed it, and we went, and we went to England, and... Traveled around the United States, went to his army base, went to all kinds of places to get the scoop. And um, we made it. And it, um, I don't know whether it went in the general release, I guess, for a little while. It got popular, like, in midnight showings, you know, that kind of film. And uh, they released an album. It was a good project. It was one of those deals. I'll... I'll segue to the Ruttles so the Ruddles was one of those projects that was um, you do on occasion that um, really really work out and that is that the idea was good that was Eric Idle the shoot went really well we had a lot of fun all the people in it were great the characters that were cast and played and it turned out good and uh, it was a pleasure the Ruddles all the way through
4: now, I imagine the ruddles stemmed from your work on Saturday Night Live, and I'm curious how a director who at that point had done almost exclusively, or as far as I know, documentary work, gets involved with Saturday Night Live at that time.
6: Well, Lauren and I were great friends, and uh, when... We actually had written some sort of crazy script for Robert Stigwood when we were friends and he uh and Dick Ebersall I guess approached him because he had worked with Lily Tomlin and I did some work on those shows and then um her old specials and uh he and him somehow whatever happened decided to do this quote unquote comedy variety show, I guess it would be termed, I don't know. But anyway, asked me if I wanted to do the little films for it. So I said, sure, we did that. Albert Brooks in that show. And then I took over and did about, I guess, 50 or 60 little movies. I don't know how many there were. That's how I became working on Saturday night. I had a it was a good scene me because I was at my own little office and was friends with everybody and I had no bones to pick and so to speak about sketches, and this and that. I give my opinion sometime. You know what I mean? I knew tell you about Saturday night is, is that what happened, I think really might happen in everything like that is once the actors saw that, uh, screen time. Was attached to certain writers they work with, then a, they kind of got together. So the actors and the writers would work a lot together. And uh, then, I, of course, I'd make my little film every week.
4: And now, I know that I've seen your films, but they did, weren't necessarily credited to the filmmakers a lot of times. So I'm curious, what were some of the films that you were making for SNL?
6: The more popular ones, I guess, were The Joke Store. Yeah, I went in there. One was garbage where I went to the garbage place and uh, followed the garbage from New York to through Staten Island uh, dump. And I made a few. I made one with Sissy Spacek to um, David Bowie's fame. I She's twirling a baton. I made them. Most of them were kind of just folksy, you know, around New York stuff. You can get them. I don't know. Somebody just emailed me that they saw a collection of them, but I don't know where the hell you get them.
4: Well, I know that the Ruddles had their appearances on Saturday Night Live before the documentary was probably even a, a concept. Was that like an assignment or did Eric Idle, how did that actually come together?
6: I wasn't responsible for the Ruddles being on Saturday Night Live. The closest thing I was doing, I did with Eric, was that I made a little short called um, Body Language where I took some of the cast and it was a thing he had written. And we went out on the streets and we did this little thing and it was fun. And, um, we had a good time. And when the runnels became a possibility to be a, uh, mock documentary, so to speak, right. He came to me and we then collaborated and did it together. Uh, Lauren, I think, produced it and NBC paid for it. So we did it now. There was an album going to be attached to that too, but I believe, as I remember, um, somebody, uh, either Apple or whoever the lawyers were, whatever happened is Neil Innes, a brilliant guy, a very nice guy who did. So he was Lennon's character and he wrote the music. He wrote all those songs that were parodies of the Beatles. And I think some of them were a little too close for comfort for whoever was representing the publishing or whatever it was for the Beatles at the time. I think that that was out for a while, and then it wasn't. And I think they they balked, you know what I mean, at the music. But the Ruddles came to pass kind of like that. And then I um, got Eric's outline or his script, as it were, We talked a lot about it, and uh, I think we went to I went to England to look at the cast because he had cast it. And one of the interesting things about the Ruttles was not unlike the Beatles, the drummer they cast was replaced. That wasn't brought up in the film, and it wasn't done. He wasn't replaced because he they wanted to have you know that was a parody of the Beatles. It just so happened. John Halsey, another terrific guy, who uh, had me come and play on his team, and uh I played baseball, had to come on his team to play cricket. That I didn't last long at the uh, cricket uh, wick. They uh, they bowled one right by me, so that's that. And I looked at the cast, and uh, everyone looked good to me, and um, all the guys were good guys, you know. That's the tale you know, that see. All these guys, uh, Ricky Fatar and uh, Blake George, I guess, and um, Neil and uh, John Holliday, they were all good guys. And so that made it uh, a pleasure.
4: I'm curious about when you decide to shoot this mockumentary i mean this is years before spinal tap and and god created you know god spoke and all of these other mockumentaries is there anything else that you're using as a template other than real music documentaries
6: no and that you have to see eric wrote it you know and he uh i contributed There's no question about it but the thing is it's his creation uh, I, I wasn't at all thinking about that. I was going by sending up the Beatles. You know what I mean. And I was a big Beatles fan, and so I got right into it. And there was a lot of help. Now George Harrison became a friend of the Ruttles. You know, and he's in the, he's in the Ruttles. So he and Eric, I'll tell you one quick story that we were sitting in the kitchen of uh, Eric's house, I guess, and. George was there, we were sitting around goofing around and Eric and I were writing stuff down or whatever we were doing and uh, this could have been, I forget what the concept was or whatever and he was there plucking a guitar and just sitting there and another terrific guy by the way who I later did a, a video for when he had my mind set on you I ended up doing his video for Warner Brothers but the thing is a great guy, a great humble guy. And, uh, so we're sitting around the kitchen table and whether it was, uh, Yoko being portrayed as a Nazi or whatever the thing was, right? I forget what we were talking about. And George (laughs) stopped plucking his guitar and he looked up and Hey guys, come on. We were the Beatles. You know what I mean? So he had a great ironic, you know what I mean? He was very cool. And, uh, The other story about George, which is great, is that uh, he once told me that uh, one of the highlights of being the Beatles was having – they closed Harrods, and they all went in there. They ended up going down to the uh, Harrods, uh, the big, lovely department uh, department store. would probably be an insult to them. But they went downstairs to the food court, where it used to be anyway the Beatles went down there and George said, he says, I've never seen anything like it, all that food. And he ended up buying things for his aunts and his own, not buying. They probably gave it to him. That, That was one of his highlights. You know what I mean? So he just loved that food court. He was great. I'll tell you another quick thing about when I went there to talk to him about his video and I went to his house, he lived in a magnificent place out in country outside London and he had a Friar Park, I think, was the name of it. It was a what they would call a folly—a house that was a folly, and everything was monks. Even the doorknob was a monk. And inside was hand-carved around the fireplace, which was the size of a Volkswagen. There were hardwood carvings of monks doing weird things. It was a a great place. And the back was a big folly. The yard was all kinds of bridges and tunnels. And this is what they call a folly in England, anyway. He uh, had a studio up there on his floor, one of the, I think it was a couple of stories, and on the top floor, he had a great studio, a little one, you know, for him to do demo, whatever he would do in there. And the point is, he had a big guitar collection, and he had these drawers uh, that looked like um, a library, you know, flat, big, tall, flat drawers that you'd open. And he had inside these drawers, he had had the collection of the the black beetle outfits. You know what I mean? They were hanging in the closet, actually. All the boots all lined up. It was all very pristine and neat. He had invitations from the queen and whatever he had. And he had this enormous beetle collection of beautiful things. So he, he uh, enjoyed being a beetle. All the hassles it might have brought, as you could see in some of that stock footage. So, in the ruttles. Anyway, a great guy. I don't recall there being any tempo. We didn't say, oh, Woodstock would have done. Well, I forgot. You know what I mean? It was nothing like that. We just made it as a film. And as I say, uh, following Eric's uh, lead with the line or script that he had that we screwed around with. But anyway, we just made it.
4: You have so many different eras being shown in the the film. It must have been such a struggle to make the movie look like it was going through different periods.
6: To tell you the truth, I don't remember struggling. As I said, I remember it being all pretty together. And, you know, when you work in England the work ethic was really great with the crew and everyone on the crew was into it. All the people, even when we did the Saturday night little pieces, I don't call them Saturday night pieces, but when we used guild on the street there, you know, and when we did John doing him, Robert Klein, was it? Yeah. All, everyone was into it. Maybe it was the time we shot it, the youth of, so to speak, youth of everyone who had just enough experience. I'm talking about, say, the you know, the creative crew of the group. Um, everyone, you know, really was enjoyable deal. At least for me, anyway, and I, I'm sure for everyone else, as I remember, or I wouldn't have this good memory of it. I mean, I, as I say, it all worked out good.
4: It feels like 1978. You must have just been so busy because looking at your cv th- seeing things like you know the Ruddles is coming out the you're still doing the pieces for saturday night live you've got uh the steve martin special happening it just seems like you didn't have very much downtime during the late 70s
6: i guess i didn't it was a mad time all everybody was really not steve but uh Our group at Saturday night was pretty crazy, and so that is probably why there's a zone that is vague. So when I say things like, (laughs) I don't really recall, and it was. It was was a good
4: time. Going back to that George Harrison video, did you shoot both of those? Got my mind set on you? I didn't.
6: I got a call from... Either John Bug or Michael Austin or someone at Warners who said, I don't know, did I do the call me out video?" Yes, you had. I had done a few things for Warners. I did a Los Lobos one. I think that was Warners. I might be wrong again there, but I did, you know what I mean? I did a bunch of those videos. Uh, They called me and I was in England, I remember at the time. I uh, was messengered the the song. and. I as I say either Bug or Michael Austin called me and they said listen to this and tell me what you think and we've shot another one but I don't think they were that pleased with the other one I've never seen the other one but there must have been a good looking girl in it because I've people said what was her name you know I've gotten a few of those throughout the years of emails or whatever so I have no idea but um, and I listened to it and then. I came up with this idea, you know what I mean? How I did, I can't, you know, don't know the narrative of that, how or, or, or what the stages were. And I kind of told them, and uh, they were pretty, with it. I'm going to tell you, in those days, Warner's music was really nice to me and would let me come in for their big meeting where I'd sit around the what did they call it? They called. they had a name for it, you know, on Tuesday morning or Monday when they would discuss everything, you know, all right, Gary, what is it you want to do with so-and-sos? And I said, well, here's the thing. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it. And they were always right on my side. You know what I mean? That's kind of how it formed. And then uh, I did it with George. was one kind of, story about that thing is, is that, you know, it was an all practical set. Uh, we had everyone behind the thing pulling strings. There was no, uh, you know, it was nothing fancy like that where we had it automatic. So it was fun. They came to the set. So I had to sit off stage and make George laugh a little bit. They wanted him to smile. Oh, here's the thing. So during the, got my mind set on you, George stands on the, uh, instrumental and does a flip well obviously that's not George but when I cut it I made it look like a and I don't even know whether you notice this but people do thank God well not thank God but George called me and he saw the rubber. I love it except one thing he says I can't let people think I'm doing a flip like that he didn't want people to think that he was that it was a peculiar thing Maybe you didn't want people to think he was that athletic. I don't know. So I said, ah, no problem. I'll jump cut it. It'll still work because then people will know we're faking it. I didn't care. So I jumped it. Now, I had questions. How did George do that flip? So a lot of people maybe didn't see the jump. I thought it was pretty prominent. But um, George was fine with it. And, you know, it became... It's a good video. I mean, I say that in humility, but, you know, it turned out good and people liked it and this and that.
4: That is one of those videos that is completely classic to me. And it's amazing, though, that the Call Me Al video for being as simple as that concept is, is just so great.
6: Yeah, that's what I like about it, too. Chevy and uh, Paul were great in it. And, um, you know, I had to coerce them a little bit into getting stuck at the door coming in and i can remember a few things about it but you know that worked out just fine and though you know obviously the song was great and um they were totally cooperative we shot it in a very short period of time i don't think we spent more than four hours doing the whole deal yeah that was good i forget who else should be given credit for it as far as was there any choreography in it? I don't know. I used Tony Basil in a few like Swan Lake I did with the Lockers, her uh her dance group. She I call her in for a few deals that had you know what I mean, that kind of thing in it. I was never opposed to having people come in and help out. You know, if the craft service person had a great idea when I was doing some projects, they say, Hey, what well, about if they got you know we had a good time on the sets of of that stuff, so I, I was cool. So anyway, whether she was involved, she's a talented woman, and uh, I'm not sure. And it could have been another choreographer. God forbid this plays in the other choreographer years, but I know I remember Tony because I, I use you know we together a few
4: times. I've always been curious about something. You shot the uh, show Action Family, the Chris Elliott show. Oh, Jesus Christ, I forgot totally about it, yeah. I absolutely love that. I bought that on a VHS tape with that and FDR, one-man show on it. I've always been curious, was that actually supposed to be a pilot, or was that just supposed to be like a you know Showtime special or something like that?
6: I think it was a one-off. Yeah, I think, as I remember. I did another one with Ackroyd called Cops, but it wasn't Cops. It was something else. It was a send-up, but I never... That never aired, I don't think. It was that was good too. I mean, I say it in, again in humility, but what I considered it was uh, it was fun. That's funny, the Chris Elliott one. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember much about that to tell you the truth.
4: Cops one was that the CCPD with him and yeah, his
6: brother? Yeah. yeah. We had a good time doing that too. I, I say them in in the same sentence, kind of because it feels like the same kind of thing. I didn't remember what whether it was going to be a pilot. That might maybe was going to be a pilot.
4: So what have you been up to lately?
6: I fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm retired. I fish. I uh, go to Baja a lot on Tuesday. I have done a few things which I helped my kid who was in uh, a film department at Loyola uh, out here I've helped him make a film. We actually did a one of my that I hear a lot about uh films was Homeward Bound, Paul Simon's Homeward Bound, where people are greeting each other at the airport. So I said, Oh let's let's have you do that. Well, you wanna steal that? You know what I mean. I'll come I'll come and help you. So we went down to LAX and we did the same, I don't know whatever his was just for class. I would say with pretty well certainty I'm kind of out of the loop. When it comes to doing film work, I have my dog. I go to the beach, play a little ball, uh, ride my bike, fish. I'm sitting outside now in a beach chair on the lawn in front of the little court that I live in, talking to you, smoking my cigar. That's kind of me now.
4: That sounds great.
6: (laughs) It isn't bad, no.
4: Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time today. I've had a real pleasure talking with you.
6: All right, I hope you have enough info. If you have anything else you want to ask me, call me back.
4: Okay, we'll do. Thank you.
6: All right, man, you're very welcome.
3: I feel good. I feel
7: bad. I feel happy. I feel sad. I might
4: Where were you in your life when the Beatles became big?
9: Well, I was still at art school. I I think I was aware of them when I was about 16 or 17. I was in a a provincial art school in Norwich, the city of Norwich. And I remember things, that's when Love Me Do and things like that came out. And of course, uh, I then moved to London. I suppose I was in London where sort of the milestone things like Penny Lane and Sergeant Pepper and everything came up. I think I was already beginning to play with the Bonzos.
4: How did you first cross paths with them?
9: The Bonzos were playing a lot with the Scaffold. You know, we'd bumped into them, different venues, and we'd actually put some concerts on together, and we got to, get to know them quite well. And, of course, the third member of uh, the Scaffold was Mike McCartney, then known as Mike McGear. And I think it was he who suggested to his his kid, as he called him, Paul, that, you know, maybe, um, you know, the Bonzo's would be good for Magical Mystery Tour. And Paul agreed, you know, because I think the Beatles used to sneak out and see us uh, in the days when they wore false beards, <laughs> uh, because we were pretty silly. And uh, so we, we turned up, the only day we could make was the day of the strip club, so it was sort of barely, you know, thrown together like that. And uh, So they, they they picked the track off Gorilla, the Bonzo's first album, called Death Cab for Cutie And that became the the song for the stripper in the Magical Mystery Show.
4: So how soon after that does Paul McCartney produce I'm an Urban Spaceman?
9: Oh, not long, I think. only about a year. When was Magical Mystery? I don't know, Dave.
4: I think it was 67.
9: Oh, right. Well, in that case, it was sort of out in 69, So yeah, about 18 months, maybe. Um, and that came about because um, the guy who produced Gorilla was our manager, uh, Jerry Brown. He was also, you know, keen on producing records. But he had this, you know, rather eccentric idea that three hours was all you needed to record a track. And we said, "Well, no, we, we've got lots of ideas, you know." And then we, that's when we came up with the idea that we'd have a, a Dada track, which we called "Jazz Delicious Hot Disgusting Cold." And we thought we we swapped instruments, apart from the rhythm section, and just tapped something in on a thirty-two bar sequence. And whatever it was, it was going to be that take. And that's exactly what it was, and it's one of my favourite tracks, Bonzo tracks, actually. But uh, the thing, the thing was, it, took, it only took ten minutes. So we said, there. Now we've got two and three quarters of hours to add to something else. So that that they, you know, they, so we were up against that. And then the record company said, we well, you, we need a single. You know, you must do a single. And we all said, why? We don't need to do a single. Other bands do singles and play around with the charts. We were very much our own sort of people, you know, art student, you know, know, this kind of fun, da-da thing. And um, and anyway, I'd written this song called Urban Space, and I played it to Viv, and he said, uh, oh, it's too many verses, and I said, well, yeah, you're right, you know, so I cut it down. So anyway, we had the song, and so we were going to, you know, record it, and Viv Stanchel, the lead singer, used to hang out a lot with both John and Paul. Uh, much more than I did in those days. And anyway, he was at the Speakeasy Club in London, you know, uh, where he used to hang out, and uh, he and Paul used to prop up the bar talking like posh English country gents. It was, Viv spoke like that, and Paul thought it was fun to, to join in. And, uh, and anyway, so Viv was complaining about Jerry, who said, you know, well, we've got to make this blasted single, and... um And the trouble is, you know, our manager, you know, we can't get the blighter off the knobs, you know, (laughs) which is his way of describing producing a record. And uh, so Paul said, well, I'll come and produce it for you. And uh, they said, really? He said, yeah, sure. So the wonderful thing was we went back to Jerry Brown and said, well, okay, we'll do the single, but we don't want you to produce it. And he said, oh, who do you think you're going to get? And it was a wonderful moment. And uh, and sure enough, you know, Paul came along and uh, produced the record. First thing happened, uh, <laughs> he came in, you know, uh, and was all smiles. Hello, how are you? And everything, I oh, was well, fine, you know. And he, he before he did anything, he went over to the grand piano in the corner, uh, this is Chapel Studio in Bond Street in London, and he said, "I've just written this," and he started playing. Hey, hey, Jude, uh, I'm sure he'd just written it the night before. Probably the Beatles hadn't heard it. And as you know, it's sort of it's slow, <laughs> lugubrious, <laughs> and on just a piano. So I thought this is hysterical. You know, he's really winding up Jerry Brown because he is playing this sort of four-hour-long dirge. Uh, you know, we haven't, we haven't even recorded note one. Uh, he, you know, that was just uh, a way of breaking the ice and saying alone. And it immediately came across as a magical tune. Um, so anyway we keep going with it and uh, he puts me in the corner he says you sing it every time you know really sing it in so I was singing every time they ran through it and then he had the idea of double tracking the drums because Larry would be going boom tit, boom tit, boom tit and then he said okay now we'll do dum t-bat, dum that, bat and but the whole thing started cooking and then he picked up his ukulele and because uh, Viv is left handed as well so he just sort of Nashville style, just sort of leaned into the microphone, doing a ding, 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 you know. So there he is playing the ukulele on it. And um, Jerry's wife, Lillian, who never came to recordings usually, but because Paul was there, she decided to graceless with a visit. And um, so she was a very kind of posh English lady, went to Oxford. She sort of came up to Paul, who'd got and said, oh, what's that you've got there? A poor man's violin. And Paul, Paul, Paul immediately said, no, it's a rich man's ukulele. So <laughs> it was a very good, fun day. And at the end of it, after about eight hours, he said, you know, I'd rather like to play my garden hose trumpet. And he did. He had a length of garden hose and a plastic funnel in one end and a trumpet mouthpiece in the other. And this he played by whirling it round his head. And the engineer looked took one look at it and said, you can't record that thing. And Paul said, yeah, you can, just put a microphone in each corner. <laughs> so four microphones went down and another 20 minutes later, you know, can could be heard whirling this thing around his head. And then it was done.
4: I imagine it's right around this time that you first crossed paths with Eric Idle, Terry Jones and Michael Palin. Is that true?
9: Yes, by then we were making a TV program called Do Not Adjust Your Set. It was supposed to be for children. Well, it was for children. <laughs> but none of us had any idea what you know uh, what you should do for children's television. Um, we just did what we liked. The producer was only 24, and he went to Cambridge, and he knew Eric. And Eric bumped into Michael Palin and Terry Jones, because they were all writing for David Frost in those days. And then there were two very good, you know, character actors, Denise Coffey, a comedian, and uh, David Jason. And so he put put us all together. And it was wonderful chemistry, and we had a wonderful time. We made 26 of these programs. So, uh, but yeah, so the, that's, the upshot of that was the influence, which Eric is one of the first who, I think he thought of it, I think, you know, we were so anarchic, uh, we never did anything quite the same twice. You know, it gave them the freedom to sort of move what they were doing on into Python and, and now for something completely different. And, of course, Terry Gilliam had joined us for the second series. So, you know, bringing these wonderful animations to the mix. But by the time the Bonzo's had finished the U.S. tour, decided, you know, maybe, you know, after five years and three managers and no holidays, it's time to sort of hang up our boots. So that's when Eric rang me up and suggested to, uh, I'd started doing some music with them, with the Python.
4: So by that time, had they had the, the television show?
9: Yes, that had just sort of started. Like the BBC can be sort of funny. Um, there was a fabulous radio show that we grew up with as children called The Goon Show. And um, the story goes that, you know, the upstairs people in charge of things had a look at it and said, "What is this go-on show? You know, com- completely clueless." And they were very similar uh, to, uh, attitude to Monty Python's Flying Circus. They took it off, you know, for, because of snooker every now and again. <laughs> it was it was not
4: um, venerated at all. <laughs> Was it pretty much a natural that you would work with them on uh, the Holy Grail, or did they bring you up after and say, yeah, come on along, we want you to?
9: We were there, I was there pretty much all the shooting. You know, it was done on a shoestring, you know, and in in fact, if you want to sort of, there's a kind of theme going, you know, anytime anything big and heavy is catapulted out of a castle, it lands on me. And um, it's just that Terry Gilliam and I were both art students, and the rest were wordy people, so they were they were rather scared of us. <laughs> so, in a childish way, they wanted to sort of get their own back.
4: Your role as the singing minstrel is one of my favorites.
9: Well, but yeah, so Eric's a lovely idea, but I mean, uh, I I really loved doing the medieval music. You know, I I. I I found myself really enjoying it, Uh, the odd phrasing and the sort of skipping about. Uh, But um, the sad thing was that the budget for the movie was 3,000 (laughs) pounds for the music, for the music. Which meant I could have 12 musicians for about, you know, for 12 hours. And I'd written all this stuff with two French horns and we had a string quartet. And we started manfully recording this, and um, the French horns—if you can imagine—in in harmony were going bum 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 ba and the strings would go da 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 da. It was very sort of you know, but it was it was magisterial. But T- Terry rang me up. We said, "You know, this is awful, Neil. But I think you know because we're using coconuts." And everything is you know, there's no horses, honestly, if the music sounds thin, which it did, because, you know, and they really had to use like 140 musicians doing, playing, you know, nondescript library music to make an impact. And the, I, I, I think he was quite right. I, I, I was only slightly missed, but, you know, it's a shame those tunes never hit the, hit the light of day, but um, he, he absolutely made the right decision. So the only music vibrance that survived was the sort of medieval stuff, and the choir, that sort of thing. The monks. Oh, the monks chant. Yeah, I actually found that they're an old manuscript. p a Zu Domine, Donna A Is Requiem. sweet Lord uh, Jesus, you know, please give us peace. And they're whacking their heads. Uh, but uh, no, it was a fun thing to do all the way through. Again, you know, and uh, being being halfway up a Scottish mountain, wearing this chain mail which is made of string and sprayed silver. And when your feet got wet it was quite miserable. I suggested we were all sit around, sat around like, you know, medieval knights in string chain mail, eating sort of scrambled egg sandwiches. I suggested a game, you know, to to, to decline the verb to sheep worry. You know, I am sheep worried, mean, I will be sheep worried. And Cleese won it with the with the future Plu Perfect. I am about to have been sheep-worried.
4: <laughs> With that film, how was it working? Because that was two directors. That was Gilliam and Jones at the same time, correct?
9: Yeah, but if you've ever worked on a film, you don't really take any notice of the directors.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
9: no, it was it, it worked fine because Terry is more of an art director, really. And I think that's the way it sort of found out, you know. But, you know, it was open to a bit of ad-libbing at any time, you know. Um I remember being one of the French soldiers up on the battlements with next to Cleese who was taunting people. You know, and anyway, he turns to me at one point and says, fetch a lavash, you know, which is <laughs> fetch, which is not a French word at all. A la lavash is the cow, right? So I thought, oh, it's such a silly line. You can't just throw it away like that. So unbeknownst to him, when he said, fetch le vache, I went, quoi? And he went, fetch You know, so it was shame- shamelessly building my part, but I think it's improved.
4: <laughs> so how does Rutland Weekend Television and the Ruddles come about?
9: I did a lot of live concerts with Monty Python because it was handy because I could hold the ship, as it were, while they sort of scrambled around and changed it into something else. And um, we were doing Drury Lane in London. And Eric said to, you know, in his dressing room, he said to me, you know, do you fancy doing some television? And I said, not really, Eric. I'm not that keen on television. Um, he said, why? He said, well, you know, do not just say said the camera's never pointed in the right place. And, uh, you know, I said, I know the Bontos didn't exactly help there. But um, but what he said, you can tell the cameras where to point. I went, ah, that's different. So I said, well, yeah, okay, you're on, you know. And basically, because Eric writes, wrote on his own within the Python group, he would still write his stuff on his own, and I would pretty much write on my own. And we'd get together, uh, you know, periodically. And um, he devised a system where we, whatever it was, whether it was a song or a sketch, we, we put it down on a postcard and pinned it to a notice board, and moved them around till it looked like, you know? And so one of the things, you know, Rutland Weekend Television, Rutland is the smallest county in England, and the idea um, that it would have a television station would obviously mean it would have hardly any money, you know, because it was news at the time that all the big independent television companies had to put in a bid for a franchise. And there's a remarkable story of central television who you know, um, suddenly realized that they probably got no opposition. So the man went down to where you, you you put your franchise in, and he had a check for 50 million pounds in one pocket and a check for one pound in the other. And when nobody showed up at 25, 29 minutes past five, the deadline, he got it all for a pound. Now I know, you can imagine the golden parachute that that board of directors got. But um, upshot was that you know it was in the public eye. You know that people were bidding to be television companies, so Rutland would obviously not have very much money, and therefore it's all its television programmes would be very cheaply made. And quite frankly, this is the only reason that BBC Two probably bought the idea of the series. It was legitimising very cheap television, and I think if Eric has got a forte of you know lampooning what television gets up to silly quizzes, and, you know, he's got an eye for it. But so he wanted me to sort of produce some musical items. So on this brief, uh, what would be cheap and possibly funny, I thought, would be a, a parody of A Hard Day's Night. So I, I said to him, well, how about Hard Day's Night? You know, black and white, speed it up, four guys running around a field. He said, great, because I'm there for a documentary maker who's so boring, the camera runs away from him. So those two were put together as part of Rutland Weekend Television, you know, and it, and it started off from a sketch of a man me suffering from love, you know, in a sort of a hospital uh, sanatorium grounds, wandering around with an idiotic, silly, sloppy look on my face, if you like, and uh, that turned into the Ruttles which then turned into the documentary maker, it turned into something else. So uh, you know that, that that how that existed. And then, when um, in America, I think uh, Sid Bernstein was there too, the promoter was trying to get the Beatles back together again. And uh, Saturday Night Live were running with the, the gag uh, of getting the Beatles back together again. And they got George Harrison on there, and Lorne Michaels waving $3,000 in cash under his nose, saying, All well, this can be yours, George, just get the boys back together. And George George saying, what, all of this for me? And and Lawn snatching it back and saying, no, no, you want to share with the others. Maybe, maybe you don't have to tell Ringo. These jokes were out there. And then the thing was that $3,000, of course, was the musician's union rate for four guys on Saturday Night Live. So anyway, anyway the, the thing was they, they, they set it up so that Eric hosted the show because he said he could get the Beatles back together for $300. And at the last minute they realized it was a bad phone line and he hadn't got the Beatles, he got the Ruttles. And they showed the clip from Ruttles Weekend Television on Saturday Night Live. And that's how, you know, the mailbag was enormous. Everyone was ready to sort of have a laugh about this. And so Lowland went downstairs and he took him about half an hour and he came back and said, well, we're on, we can do the whole story. And that's how all you need is cash got going. No, no, it just happened, you know. (laughs) Very fast.
4: <laughs> Tell me about the the other guys that were in the Ruddles. How did you uh, connect with these guys?
9: John Halsey was in a band called Fatso, which I used to play in a pub with. Because I was doing um, weekend television, and John rang me up and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing this tele thing. So he said, I'm playing with this great band. I said, oh, I'll come see you. And I thought... Why don't I? You know, they offer. You know, I said, why don't you join us? You know, and uh, it was great to sort of actually go out and play some live music. Whereas Billy Bremner who was in Rockpile on on guitar, Roger Redick who's uh, pedal steel and Fender guitar as well. It worked, you know, uh, and so they become became the house bands for the second series of Britain Weekend Television. They they were known as the Alberto Vesectomy Five. But then BBC said you can't say vasectomy, <laughs> so they became known as the Alberto Rewrite Five. And that's, that's who's playing when George did the Christmas special. You know, I'd like to be a pirate. So all these, all this fun was being had. So John Halsey, I knew the drummer, and I think Eric had been on a holiday in the Bahamas, the way Eric does, and he bumped into Ricky Fatar. It always makes me laugh because they're sitting on the beach and then out of the blue, Eric says to Mickey, Mickey, how would you like to be a Ruttle? And Mickey remembers saying, Yeah, okay. And at the same time, thinking, I wonder what a Ruttle is.
4: (laughs) Obviously, you're involved greatly with the songwriting. Are you involved with the writing of the narrative as well?
9: Only in the kind of ad-lib sense. You know, the structure is definitely Eric. He's he sort of put the structure together. But it's based on, you know, what happened to the Beatles. The fun of the Ruttles is to pretend the Beatles didn't exist and just tell the story, you know. And George Harrison was plying us all with, you know, details and, and footage, you know, he got out of Apple from the Aspinall. Just some of the bits, I suppose, mainly the shower scene, you know, there was no script for that, you know. And Eric just sort of set off camera and I said, why are you doing this? I just had lived. He said, well, we're in a shower getting wet because, you know, I said, well, uh, <laughs> wet, uh, you know, so on, you know. And Eric rather mucked up that take by sort of like laughing at the end. So I had had to do it twice, you know. But there were lots of things things that were very funny. You know, Ricky was funny because um, he could roll his eyes in a certain way and just say one or two things that nailed it, you know. And uh, and John was very funny. And uh, so I think it's a shame that a lot of that stuff didn't actually get through because by the time you cut it all down to fit two hours on prime time, you've only got one hour, 12 minutes. And uh, so a lot of stuff hit the cutting room floor if I, I said to her, you know, why don't you, you know, get the man in and the, and the Macintosh back again and then use some of the stuff? You know, it was obviously on the same reel, but apparently they couldn't find it. So when the, the second one, I think, is, you know, basically Eric and his Hollywood chums. But I know there's some funny stuff that will never see the light of day, but the people editing have a lot of fun with it.
4: Tell me about the songwriting. How was it like approaching... Because you're so close, but you're not right there. And then the songs themselves, I mean, there are some funny bits to them, but they're not necessarily comedy songs. It's a really interesting mix.
9: No, well, this is, you know, go back to the meeting where Blonde re enters the room triumphant, saying, I've got the budget. And I'm sitting on a windowsill away from the excitement, just waiting, you know, because suddenly the penny dropped. You know, they turned to me and said, Ah, you're going to need a few songs. You know? <laughs> so I had the time to think that, you know, well, whatever I do, I do not want to trivialize the Beatles' songs because I'm a big fan of their songs. And I also knew, sort of in a visceral way, that if I started listening to the Beatles' songs, <laughs> indeed, I would I'd never get anywhere. So I formulated in my own mind, so sort of when they said, well, can you t- give us 20 more Rottles songs by next Thursday lunchtime? I said, well, I'll try. You know, so I went away, and I thought, oh, well, I'll stick to those things. And I thought, well, if I can think about where I was when I heard some of the signpost songs, like All You Need Is Love, or, you know, but being part of the ventricle mystery tour, I sort of kind of knew that a little bit from the inside, but the hardest songs of all were the early ones, you know, arguably where they're channeling teenage girls. Then I thought, well, that's it. Yeah, I remembered my first date at school, you know, and I said, well, you know, that sort of thing. And so I came up with the idea of Hold My Hand, you know, and. The, the kind of level of, you know, getting to know girls and things like that. I'm not the kind of guy who likes to play Big Brother, but I've just seen your date outside. He's with another, you know. So this is coming from my memory. Um, and, I, and I thought, well, if you know, the, the tunes will work with a one instrument, if I can sing a song with a guitar or a piano, it'll, it'll take all the arrangement, you know, necessary. So that's basically what I did. The, all the songs yeah I could actually sing, and it worked as a song just as like a solo so when when I got all the songs written, then you know we started to to look at how to record them and I, the second good idea I had was when with Ollie Horsall and Ricky and John, we the four of us we we locked ourselves into this house in northern London with a bloke called and Two Revox Machines. And we started rehearsing, and and Wimbledon happened to be on as well. So we worked really hard, and then we had a break watching silly Wimbledon, and then go straight back to it. So after two weeks, we came out like a band, you know. And uh, the thing is that Ollie Halsall's got this great voice as well, and so he was singing songs. Ricky was singing. It was. It felt really good. So we went into the studio, and we started putting the songs down. And and when, once we started, we started, well, this one's probably going to be, be, well, obviously, you know, Piggy in the Middle was going to be like I Am the Walrus. So we listened to the production of I Am the Walrus, and that's when you heard all this kind of extra stuff you weren't really aware from. So we listened really hard to the Beatles production But uh, when the time was right. And in fact, the album, almost like the script said, it only took 10 days completely you know from basic tracks to overdubs and mixing uh and so these things i think it's the only thing in the film that came is under budget
4: the thing that always gets me about all you need is cash is the well the the production values the way that you guys in those costumes the reproductions of the record covers i mean everything looks so good
9: if you just adopt like a Children in a sand clip playing a game using their imaginations—you are—you are you're, you're actually taking the role model, you know, uh, just twisting it around. I mean, well, the whole story was there, from you know the, the Beatles. The fun was pretending the Beatles didn't exist, and it was only ever the Ruffles. Do you see what I mean? So we think, well, what can we do for that? What well, we we'll do that? I mean, Eric was uh, great in suggesting that uh, the second film, the, the expensive one in colour. Help, you know, could be called Ouch, and that that, that was a great help. <laughs> so that, uh, I decided to write a film called, uh, a song called Ouch, you know, to go with that film. The first album, you see, was really had to be like a an album, uh, film things. Certain signposts had to be acknowledged. So that, you know, that we knew that we need some we needed some kind of early rock and roll ones. You know, Blue suede Shoe but I'm rather proud of that title. <laughs> which which is more which is more Chuck Berry than um,
4: uh, than Beatles? <laughs> Though their early stuff is very indebted to Chuck Berry,
9: <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, you see, this is the thing. Um, I think the name "rattle" is misleading. It should be a verb to rattle, to to copy or emulate someone you admire. Brackets, especially in the music business, because if you think about it, the Beatles rattled Chuck Berry and uh, Gene Vincent and Elvis. Mozart probably ruffled the guy who played the harpsichord first. And uh, <laughs> so that's what music is, you know, R- people ruffling each other. I think swap ruffle for role model and you get the idea. You know, and in fact, all humanity has ever done is say, that's a good idea. I'd like that. And uh, and and doing it. So the, that's the, the essence of the ruttles is unashamed copying, because what you're copying is really good.
4: I have to say the one interview that always surprises me in the All You Need Is Cash is Mick Jagger. I was so happy. He gets so into it. He It really speaks as if the Ruttles were a real band.
9: Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, but, but that's that's the thing. He, all he knew had to do was change the names, but he was telling pretty much true, true stories. <laughs> And, they, and then you have to remember that George was in this up to his neck. You know, he was the one that persuaded Mick uh, to come along and Paul Simon. So because, because George said, hey, come on, be in this that film. And they said, oh, all right. Then. And, um, and, of course, Eric has used that wonderful bad continuity thing of him being in a hospital bed, having been run over on Abbey Road Crossing, you know, <laughs> talking to Mick who's in a different place, you know. So all these things come together, you know.
4: What did the Ruddles do for you? How did that impact you?
9: It's one of the most bittersweet things. <laughs> it was as a project. It's, I've never known a fun project like it. Everybody involved knew what to do. All the extra musicians, the piccolo trumpet player on Double Back Alley. You know, even the girls chasing the cars in Liverpool. Everybody knew what to do, and on that level, it was such a fun thing. On um, on another level, the aftermath, where publishers, you know, started getting really nasty, and I couldn't believe, you know, just how nasty they could be. I didn't actually go to court, but my publishers actually abandoned me. People publishing the Beatles songs had a million dollars slash fund to bring take people to court. My publishers said, "Oh no, the, the, the songs are different," and they employed a musicologist. Well, $5,500 back in the 70s, which I paid. It all said, oh, there's no, so, no no case to arms here. The tune's different, the words are different. Halfway through, he had a bit of musicologist fun by suggesting that, oh, yeah, and all right, were in the public domain. The, my publishers just dropped me in it, threw me under the bus, because they said, oh, yeah, we'll win, but we might not get costs. So I ended up having to sign something that assigned the copyright to then ATV Music, where they were only offering me 10%. So I, I said, no, I'm not signing that. You know, that's just not out, not on. But at the end, the best they could do was get 50%. Oh, I very grudgingly, you know, sort of signed it and turned my back on the music business. A bit like Ron Dusty, <laughs> And um, I went into children's television doing, you know, things at work I really enjoyed. But I, I felt it was unbelievably... Bullying boy stuff, and, uh, and quite unlike anything uh, I'd ever encountered before. How could something that was so much fun tended into something that was so unfair? But that's the way it was, and, and, and then go on for you know another thirty-five years. Now I've actually got those songs back in America because of some great American politician who made it law that after thirty-five years, so many people be being, being ruined, you know, and skimmed by the business you know the, they got their compositions back but I, I still think that you know that uh some people are not accepting it again so uh we'll see what happens it's an outrage really uh, i just think that all sorts of things i know so many worse things are happening in the world but uh, you know this this is this is the just tip of the iceberg of the sort of things that are happening in the world and i i can tell you from the receiving end it's not
4: pleasant when you lose the the rights to your own songs, are you even performing those live when you perform?
9: Oh yeah, they, they have no right in law at all, but they, because law is so expensive, and they've got money and you haven't, you know, and they don't pay you for some reason. I never got that fifty percent. It maybe got sent to a few other people. I know George noticed that you know they were getting their share and told me that. And we we. George is the only other person who's got a copy of that Musicologist report.
4: <laughs> Can you tell me about the whole thing with Oasis and one of your songs?
9: Ah, well, back to Michael McCartney again. He rang me up and he said, have you heard the Oasis single? And I said, no. And he said, well, it's just been on Radio 1 and uh, Nicky Campbell or something, of DJ played it back to back with How Sweet to Be an Idiot. And he said, it's, very similar. And I, I said, well, all right, well. And I forgot about it for a week or two. And then I rang up EMI, who were the publishers of How Sweet to Be and They went, oh, yeah, no, we're on it, we're on it. Oh, 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 you know. So um, the next thing I know, that they've settled, uh, and 25% comes to me, which says I have to share 50% with EMI. And uh, <laughs> so... It goes on, you know, but the the fact is that there's a lovely bit of journalism in the New Musical Express, the NME, never underestimate the NME, Um, they said, Neil is to Sue Oasis, you know, uh, that was the headline, and if you read on, it said, um, Neil is to Sue Oasis, or at least we think he is, because we phoned him, but he was obviously out, maybe he was seeing his lawyers. But we're getting used to that kind of journalism.
4: Can you tell me about recording the albums, the Monty Python albums? Because those were a, a big part of my childhood growing up. And I'll tell you, for the longest time, I didn't know that there was a second groove on Matching Tie and Handkerchief.
9: There's four. And I know. you. Could, the odds are probably you'll never hear the fourth one. They all start the same. I, I don't know whose idea that was. It could have been Gilliam. Yeah, it's infuriating because you want to hear everything you did. You can't always. <laughs> Andre Jacquemin is a, a stalwart of all that because he, a lot of the sketches and stuff, he just did on um, quarter inch and cut things together. He, uh, I have images of him with a sort of razor blade and sort of about 12 strands of tape over his shoulder. How on earth he did it, I don't know. But he pulled it all together and it was made in various little studios I think we used the Workhouse studio, Manfred Burns studio in the old Kent Road to do the farming things. And again, you know, Ollie also was involved with that. Zoom Money was involved. It's great to get a bunch of people down and have a bit of fun.
4: I don't know if this is all right to ask, but I am curious. Why weren't you involved with uh, Can't Buy Me Lunch?
9: I suggested it, but um, then he didn't do it the way I thought. So I I really distanced myself from it you know I I I, I didn't really enjoy it <laughs> because I I don't, I didn't see the point of just putting footage the same footage back in in color so I I I have to say that well it is what it is but it, it's not what I would have done <laughs> I would have found those bits of you know ad libs from the rest of the people, the funniness of it, and then the, the irreverence of it. And it no, it honestly, is, it, it, the, my memory is uh, of a lot more funny stuff, than, and I was disappointed at the time that it wasn't in. But uh, that's the way it goes, you know. I should. People said come over to New York to the edit and things like that, and I, I didn't bother. You know, I do. Yeah, I, I, my job was done. You know.
4: What was it like for you seeing stuff like um Bruce Willis' The Return of Bruno or This Is Spinal Tap after you had kind of already broke that ground with the Ruttles?
9: I adored Spinal Tap. I, I'm a big fan of Rob Reiner anyway as a filmmaker. It was ace. It was lovely. I mean, it didn't bother me at all. I mean, we may have been the first mockumentary, but I thought there were... Christopher Guest and uh, Michael McKean and, and Harry Shearer, yeah. He came to the thing we did at uh, the Troubadour. We did a kind of deal of this and fake rattle thing in the 90s. He came to that. So no, there's, uh, there's a definite kind of hands across the water there. With uh, I think ruttles and spinal tap should sort of form a supergroup. We could make progressive rock, which had never been born.
4: Well, how about you? What are you up to these days?
9: Uh, well, we've just been touring the Russells, and it's been amazing. You know, We've just had pretty much sell-out crowds, and every, about eight or nine songs people sing along with, word for word. And I can always say this, it, what's lovely, after 40 years, You know, that it's not about the trousers anymore, it's about the songs. So we, 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 they've asked us all to do it next year. And it's not a career move, it's something we enjoy doing. And uh, if we have fun and don't lose money, that's what we do. I've also got enough songs around to sort of make another solo album. So I'm making plans for that and trying to finance it because I really would like to do it the old fashioned way of getting, you know, really good friends and musicians together in the room at the same place, at the same time. Even though you can sort of send tracks to people through the ether, it's not the same. So I'm going to try and get a bit of money together from funding crowdfunding things to 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 uh, finance it, so that's over the next sort of six months to a year I've, i'm as, I've, I've, I'm as busy as I want to be I seem to be perpetually busy i've been working on an audio biography because I think it's, I started writing a book, somebody said write a book and I, and I thought as soon as I start writing words on a page i I get this disease of you know more adjectives than I need. <laughs> I said nobody talks like this so I, I just thought well I'd better be a microphone man so yeah, I'm playing around with that but I've, I've gone a bit too I've set too many things going at once and I need to sort of thin it out and do one thing or the other so that's facing the wall for a little while but I'm i am really happy, busy, working and plenty of ideas and, um, and <laughs> I'm picking my jaw up off the ground at what's happening in the world, comparing how optimistic we were in the 60s.
4: Yeah, no, things are rather dire right now. I completely yep, agree. Yep. <laughs> Why did you move to France?
9: Well, partly because the weather is so much nicer. Have you ever been to England in the win- in the winter? It is unspeakably miserable. So uh, a combination of things tried to sort out business outrages, uh, which I, after 10 years, I realized I was not going to be able to do. So I decided to look what I've got and then sell up, and just move, block stuck, and barrel. And and I don't regret it at all. It, 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 it's absolutely lovely living here. I'm not I'm only an hour's flight away from London. It's, it, it's, it's fine. And I, I've got a lovely little basement studio and a stone house. And I come out in the sunshine. And uh, I've got a pool to dip in, and I'm surrounded by woods and rocks and deer and red squirrels. It's lovely, and the wine, of course. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, Mister Ennis, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you.
9: Well, I, I hope you've got what you <laughs> you hope to get. But no, thank you, Mike. Just, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. you. Made it very easy. Thank you.
3: How sweet to be an idiot, as harmless as a cloud, too small to hide the sun, almost poking fun at the warm but insecure untidy crowd. How sweet. As much retaliation as a toy. How sweet to be an idiot. How sweet. And I'll sing the blues to fly away.
4: All right, we are back, and we are talking about The Ruddles. So just like every good musical mockumentary has to have a disappointing sequel, I'm looking at you, Spinal Tap, Break Like the Wind. The Ruddles also had an appropriate cash grab follow-up with the 2004 special DVD something or other. It looked like it was made for cable. Can't Buy Me Lunch. So, yeah, Can't Buy Me Lunch. This is a very troublesome thing. And this is, like I said, this is like everything that you like has to have the obligatory sequel that just kind of sucks. And I wasn't a big fan of can't buy me lunch. I don't know if you guys saw anything of worth or of use in it.
5: There, there were a few moments and using some of the footage that didn't make it into the first one. It was nice to see that, but it didn't need to be as long as it was. I mean, I I do crack up. And I know Eric Idle cracks up at the same thing of Gary Shanling telling the story, you know his favorite moment of the Ruddles is when they're getting off the train, and the Germans are there, and he stops he thinks, oh wait no i'm I'm confusing the Ruddles with Schindler's list. I'm like all right that's that's a pretty funny gag, but otherwise, yeah, I can't think of too many things that were really funny in there to warrant the running time
1: I think a lot of those moments really could have just made interesting DVD extras, but there was no purpose with this film. I mean, even th- given that the purpose of a sequel is to further the story, you know, regardless of whether it's a good furthering on of the story or not, this is just basically telling the same story as in the first film. Again, it's like, oh, we've got Now, a whole bunch of celebrities who are big fans of the Ruttles, oh, well, we can redo the first film but tell it through their eyes and say, oh, here's Bonnie Raitt, oh, here's Steve Martin, here's Tom Hanks, we know all these people. Yeah, let's do the first film again but with these people instead of the way how we did it in the first place. So even if there are a handful of gags, there, there are a handful of gags in it which I thought, yeah, that's okay, but it was a purposeless sequel more than I think just about anything I've ever watched.
5: A real shame about it is you have this sequel where it's only one of the Ruddles involved, and then at the same time you have a reunion album where it's three, the other three Ruddles involved. Granted, Idol does use music from from the the reunion album or the follow. I don't know if you want to call that a reunion album or not, but he uses music from it in this sequel, cutting footage from the first film. To sync to it, which I, I was actually kind of impressed at the editing because, you know, if, if you're not aware of it, you almost think that they actually were playing these songs, even though they hadn't been recorded yet. It just seems like a real missed opportunity to make a Ruddle sequel around the same time that the three Ruddles were promoting that new album. Yeah, because I mean, they did a lot of stuff. They did a lot of promotion for it. It would have been a great time to, to shoot some stuff and have them as. Olderman. I mean, there's that one clip, news clip of uh, Ron Nasty being interviewed about, are you doing this just for the money? And he says that line about, oh, it's not all about the money. People put too much importance on money. I mean, I, I give away my money all the time, usually in exchange for things. And I'm like, I oh, still got that wit. <laughs> you know, you still got it. And I'm sure that was completely ad libbed. It just seems like they could have made a really great sequel if all of them had been involved and they'd they'd thought it out. And they could have still used a lot of the stuff that made it into what became the sequel. But it just seems like a a missed opportunity.
4: Because by the time 2004 rolls around, I mean, we had already had the, uh, what was it, Um, Hell Hell Freezes Over tour of the Eagles and some of these other bands that swore they would never get back together there's something that you could parody right there as far as having these things, you know, these musicians who maybe now hated each other all getting back together and playing it out that way. I think that would have been a good way to hang your hat on. And then, yeah, talking about the influence of these guys rather than just doing a a
1: repeat of the first movie. When did A Mighty Wind come out? Because that, that sort of does that. Yeah, so, I mean, the politics of that, so here in 2019, that's not to say though that Eric Idle wouldn't say, well, I know that you've done it, but... I think I'm going to do it now. Uh, He—he—he's—I uh, mean, in this world where we like to talk about recycling, Eric Idle is a champion of that. So you know, I'm looking at you, Oratorio of Life of Brian or Spamalot. So can't buy me lunches. You know, just another in a list of things that he's done that he thinks. Oh, I think I'll do that a second time, but you know, maybe put a different spin on it. So
4: yeah, I. Just have some issues with some of the stuff that he does and it just, you know, they, and they make a joke like this is just a shameless cash grab, but it is a shameless cash grab sometimes. And it's like, okay, I liked spam a lot, but. There's a lot of other things that I sure didn't like. And uh, like, I don't need to buy the same damn Monty Python album 15 times. You know, I've got my, you know, six or seven albums. I shouldn't buy tying a ha- matching handkerchief, you know, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh time. Just stop it. Quit doing that kind of stuff. Um. Morse, did you have a chance to read Idol's Autobiography?
1: No, I did not. Sorry.
4: Kind of reminds me of that Dennis Miller joke about um when the White Album came out on CD and Manson was quoted as saying, Oh, man, I, I, I've never heard it this way before. I must have had a blown speaker or something. Reading... Idol's biography, I kept wondering if I had a corrupt file or something because as I'm reading his autobiography, I'm just like, this is so rambling and it feels like we've heard or I've read the same not the exact same sentence a second time, but he would just repeat himself as he was doing it. It was almost like it was just a transcription of him saying something in the way that when people talk, they will repeat themselves they 'll go back they 'll say something you know a, a slightly different way later on, and they 'll just keep harping on the same points and that 's very much how like I read the two chapters about the ruddles, and that 's very much how this this came out for me was just. It felt very rambling. And like, did he not have an editor on this? Or like I said, did I get a corrupt file? Because it just was very, very confused.
5: Yeah, I only those are the only parts that I read so far. I do want to read the whole thing also. But I read those parts after watching the Q&A from the screening that where they all got back together. And it was almost some of the things he said there were word for word, what's in the book, as if he has this memorized you know he knows exactly how he's going to tell this story Uh, to the point that i was like did i already read this And i'm like no i just heard him say this on a video like the other day
4: after doing 400 episodes of the projection booth congratulations everybody for being on the 400th episode for after doing that for so long i have found that certain people certain celebrities have their stories it's pretty much, I'm sure that the three of us are very much the same way. Like, tell me the story about when this happened and you tell the story and it's probably very similar to the last time you told the story. And when it comes to a lot of celebrities that I've interviewed over the years, it's the same thing. It's like, can I break this guy out of telling me the exact same thing that he said on the audio commentary or in the interview with this magazine or whatever? Because yeah, people are like that. They just have their set stories, and they just tell them the exact same way every single time. That's been my challenge, just trying to break people out of doing that sometimes. Uh, and then other times, you're just like, tell me this story. You know, hey, uh Steven E. D'Souza, tell me this story about when, you know, the, the director of Commando went and saw Rambo, and then what happened the next day on set? Like, those are, like, familiar and they, they warm your heart kind of stories versus just like, Oh my God, you're telling the exact same story the exact same way again. I really don't need to hear this. So like you're saying, yeah, that Q and A was super similar. The one thing from that Q and A that I really kind of liked and it was a really super catty thing was when Eric Idle was talking about how he was interviewing these celebrities and you know more as you said, like if you replace uh, the Beatles with the Ruttles, they could be a little bit more open, a little bit more true.
0: Yeah, I found subsequently interviewing a lot of people about the Ruttles is they tend to reveal more than they would if you asked them about the Beatles. And I found that particular on the second one where i interviewed a lot more people that they actually tell very intimate and rather sometimes very moving stories under the guise of talking about the ruttles. And uh, Dirk isn't that popular, it turns
5: out. I think in that same Q&A, somebody, uh, oh God, I, I'm trying to think of the details, but it, they, they mentioned Stig being the quiet one, and uh there was like an answer that they didn't let him answer or something like that. And it you know, I I knew the joke that he was the quiet one, but it wasn't until rewatching you know, All You Need Is Cash this past week that I realized he doesn't have a single line in the entire thing. Like he sings a song, but he never speaks. We never hear his voice through the entire movie. Don't they cut him off a lot of times, too? Yeah, there there's a uh, like a press conference where uh, he keeps trying to say something. They keep interrupting him.
4: Well, Stig says that this and Stig says that.
5: But yeah, I never noticed it that, that out of all of the ruddles, he never gets to talk.
4: I also appreciated the editing job that they did on those songs because I was fooled watching them. I'm just like, wow, were these outtakes? Did they have these filmed? And then, yeah, if you're watching closely enough, you can tell that it's just other footage where, you know, we'll see the back of somebody's head, the side of their head where things aren't necessarily matching up. And we've seen that a lot in music documentaries. If you do it well, it can look very nice. I think one of the best ways I've ever seen that done fakery of a band done was in something else that's Beatles related, which was uh, Zemeckis I want to hold your hand. And when they have the body doubles for the Beatles on stage and the camera is coming around behind the TV cameras on the Ed Sullivan show, and we see the actual Beatles in the monitors of those cameras, but those are in focus, but the people who are on the stage being filmed aren't in focus. And I thought that was always a really smart way of doing this to make it look like you're actually pointing a camera at a beetle when you're pointing a camera at a body double and you're playing something back in the monitor. I thought that was a really nice way of doing it.
5: Yeah, you'd really have to memorize each move
4: if you're one of those body doubles. Well, and that's the thing too, is that I appreciate how the Ruddles really mocked those movements too. I mean, I, I, the head movement of Barry really played well with how Ringo moves his head.
5: Oh, also his drumming. I was watching, you know, just his his hi hat stick. I don't know if it was in the original film or if it was in the sequel, but I was—I I think it was in the sequel—that you can actually see more footage of Barry drumming, and you realize. Okay. This guy really does know how to drum. Like this isn't just some guy they got to play a drummer. This guy really knows how to play these things. And I would imagine he's a pretty, just, just how, from how it looks, he's a pretty powerful drummer, but I don't know much about him other than that he owns a bar now. And, and I think he played on a few records, but
1: it, well, it's an interesting thing that they got, uh, John Halsey who is actually a terrific drummer to uh, play for the Rolls because Ricky Fatah who ended up being Stig O'Hara, is known as a drummer. I mean, he, he's an all-rounder. He can play everything. But uh, he was a drummer for about two years in the early 70s in the Beach Boys when Dennis Wilson punched his fist through a glass window or something like that. Uh, and they had to replace him with, with Ricky Fatah and another fellow called Blondie Chaplin. Both of them had been in a band in South Africa called the Flames, which were sort of a mixture of some stonesy sort of songs and some Beatlesque sort of songs. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that in a parody of the Beatles, they get a Beach Boy, which was the other sort of really mega big band of you know, that period. Uh, but Ricky Fatah is an insanely talented drummer. So interesting that he ends up doing guitar duty for the Rattles.
5: Who was it that played Barry? Uh,
1: his name is uh, John Halsey.
5: I, I, I seem to remember his name from some other Neil Innes projects. I want to say Grimm's Clowns on the Road or something like that. I, I, I remember looking into more Neil Innes projects after discovering the Rattles and noticing a lot of the same names involved, but I, I probably should have pulled all that stuff out and made some notes before we did this recording.
4: And apparently he was in a the movie Record City from 78, which I remember trying to track down a long time ago because of just the amazing cast in that. I mean, Ed Begley Jr., who I like a lot, Jeff Altman, uh famously of Pink Lady and Jeff, and then Sorrel Brook, who ends up showing up in a lot of stuff, but most people know him for uh being Boss Hog, And just a really crazy cast. And then Rick Dees is in there as well. I don't think I've ever seen that movie, but I do remember trying to track that one down for a while. I think I might have finally done it. Ed
5: Begley Jr., also a uh, Spinal Tap drummer. Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) I think we need to um, get hold of a copy of Record City and do that on C here.
4: All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Raleigh Tyler is an FX man, the movie's master of make-believe.
0: He can show you a thousand ways to die okay, got, got. Great special effects. but now somebody wants raleigh tyler to do it for real we want to stage a fake assassination raleigh and we want you to supervise it who's the we justice department
1: i'm a special effects man i deal in
5: make-believe i'd like to keep it like that we just thought that we might be able to utilize your particular
0: genius to help us out and what if someone takes a shot at you, you are 100 protected i give you my word
9: that job that guy wanted me to do?
0: I think I'll do it. But someone else is writing the script <coughs> and casting him as the killer. I
1: haven't done anything. What if he put
0: in real bullets? If one person, one person suspects... Sorry, Raleigh, no
7: loose ends.
0: <clears throat> <clears throat> but up something. He tried to kill me.
7: You go directly to the newspapers.
9: What makes you think they believe me?
8: I believe you.
0: My name is Leo. We need to talk.
7: Where the hell are you, Tyler? He's going to need every trip from every movie he's ever made.
0: Remember my particular genius. Just to get even. <laughs> and get out alive.
6: I'm in pursuit of a blue step van. Letters on the side. X as in Frank, X as in X-ray.
0: Remember Skidball Express? I sure do! Mail!
1: <laughs> Son of a you
0: this hard. But Raleigh Tyler's most special effects
1: are yet to come. Forget why you hired me. What
2: not? At the next corner, send Nelly
0: in! Oh my God! What-
1: <laughs> is he the weapon?
0: Or the victim? Is it murder? Or is it... FX?
4: That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the film FX. Until then, I want to thank this week's co host Morris and Skiz. So, Morris, what is the latest with all of your podcasting ventures, sir?
1: Very excited because uh, this month, when we're recording, January, I'll be speaking to... Uh, an incredible filmmaker. You might have heard of him. I think his name is uh, Skiz uh, We'll be talking with him about his new film called Ice Pick to the Moon. Either of you guys know about him?
4: That guy owes me money. It's a familiar name. Did he do some sort of like a baseball movie or something?
1: The last few months on C here, we've been doing quite a few interviews. Normally, our format has been just to sit around our respective microphones and talk about films, but it's been really exciting that we've been... Getting interviews apart from Alan Arkush, who was you know an established director, but we've been speaking to quite a few uh, new directors, and that's been very very exciting. So you know this month we're speaking with Skiz, Uh, next month we're speaking to a fellow who directed a new documentary called The Library the library music film. So it's about the history of library music. And I always had this impression in my head what library music actually was. And then listening to a bunch of it in research for this film, and I'm thinking, I know that tune. I know that tune. Oh, my goodness, I know that tune. And so it's like an alternative history of pop music, if you will. And it's really fascinating stuff. So looking forward to uh, talking about that. Uh, And the other thing I've got going on is I've just recently started up a new band, with, uh, with this great uh, songwriter, guitarist at the moment. It's just the two of us. We're sort of jamming around his songs, but um, we're sort of doing stuff in a flying burrito brothers, Elliot Smith sort of vein. And um, really looking forward to maybe getting it and doing some stuff with that. So,
4: And Skiz, what can we look forward to from you in 2019?
5: Uh, let's see. I'm going to keep showing Ice Pick to the Moon around as much as I can and work on getting the DVD made and uh released and then try to finish up a bunch of the projects that were sort of backburnered while i was trying to finish that film uh including a short documentary on Erga music war uh, another another documentary that i've worked on little by little over many many years and just sort of feel like okay it's just time to finish it and get it out there and get it off my plate and uh other than that make some music and uh i don't know write write some more i guess
4: well, let me know when I can fuel up the jet and come on down and help you out with that DVD release. Anytime. All right. <laughs> well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. I can't believe it's been 400 episodes. So thanks for uh if you've listened to everyone. Oh, my God. I feel so bad for you. <laughs> wow. So, as always, please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episodes. And I will say, you can also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show. It would be really nice to have more ratings. I mean, we've done 400 episodes. I think we've had, like, 230 people review it over the last, like, eight years. So, maybe some more folks would be good. And only, like, five hateful reviews. So, that's... Pretty good. I really want some more hateful reviews out there. That would be fantastic. Uh, Or you can give money to the show at Patreon. You can go over to our website as well and find the link over to Patreon where you can give your hard-earned cash to us. Uh, If you're a government worker, good luck with that. You can give us all your remaining cash so you can be completely flat, broken, destitute. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
0: Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group
3: and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. (laughs)